Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. It is officially spooky season, October is here. I hope that you all have a great month and look forward to a terrifying Halloween. Let's not waste any more time and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I excavate old military sites for a living. I've revealed a horror unlike anything before. Written by Doomed Geek. Becoming an archaeologist was a dream come true. It had not been easy. When I was at university in London, I had to work a night shift to make ends meet and then study all day while struggling to keep my eyes open. There had been other challenges along the way. Strange, terrifying challenges. But I had made it. I was teaching archaeology at a university in the north of England. The academic year had finished and these students had left the campus, but I had stayed. I had been planning on spending the summer break quietly cataloging objects in the archaeological department storeroom until I was almost killed by a thousand-year-old dagger. Welcome to my life. I had taken the dagger out of the box where it had been stored and was looking for a blank label when it flew through the air. It missed me by inches and ended up embedded in the wall. That was disturbing enough on its own, but what made it worse was that I was the only person in the room. The dagger must have been propelled by some unseen force, some entity. This wasn't the first time that I had encountered unnatural malevolent forces during the course of my work. That did not take the sting out of the terror that I felt in that moment. A bead of sweat trickled down my neck and I began to shake. I looked around the room again. It all seemed so normal, so dusty and dull. There were shelves covered in storage boxes, shelves with a stationery on, a no-smoking sign on the wall. I thought how great it would have been if somebody had put up a no-ancient-evil sign, and I bit down on a hysterical laugh. I needed to stay calm and rational. But one of the boxes was moving. Its lid rattled and then the entire box began to shake. And then, in one sudden movement, it toppled off the shelf and landed on the floor. The box next to it did the same and then the next. Whatever was doing this was sweeping them off the shelves. I had never encountered a poltergeist before, but that struck me as the most likely cause of this. And this poltergeist was working itself up into a frenzy. More boxes were sent to flying and now the contents that spilled out were being whipped up into the air as well. I dodged just in time as the large bronze coin went spinning past my head. A stone tablet with symbols etched into it shattered at my feet. Seeing this historically precious artifact destroyed appalled me. For a moment I forgot my fear and I yelled out, Stop it! I immediately regretted this. An axe had tumbled out of one of the boxes and now it rose up from the floor, hovered in midair for a moment and then flew at speed towards me. The poltergeist's aim was thankfully once more just off, and the axe span past my cheek. As it did, I felt a sharp pain in my ear. I touched the lobe gingerly and then looked at my finger. There was blood there. The axe had nipped me, and now it was rising back up into the air, ready to strike. 
The door was closed and I was too far away for me to make it in one piece. I did the only thing that I could think of. I pleaded for my life. Please don't hurt me, I begged. I am not your enemy. I will help you if I can. The axe halted and then dropped to the ground. Moments later, I felt a disturbance in the air as if someone was standing right next to me. And then a cold breath touched my cheek and I heard a voice whisper. You say you will help me. You who is so afraid. I shivered and said, Yes, I will help. The cold breath drifted over me and I heard the voice say, Release me. I killed with the dagger and was killed with it. And now it holds me close, the cursed thing. Release me. Break the dagger, snap its blade. Let me be free. The words ended in a sigh that felt like ice pressing against my skin. I swallowed down bile which had risen into the back of my mouth, and I moved it slowly towards the dagger. I would do what the poltergeist had wanted, to save myself. The dagger was still embedded in the wall. I tried to pull it out, but it was stuck too firmly. Instead, I pulled down on it with all my weight and finally, the old metal had cracked and broke. Its tip was still in the wall, but the rest was snapped off. I had broken the dagger as I had been asked. And as I stood there looking dumbly at the remnant in my hand, I felt the air around me begin to move. It quickened and whirled as if there was a storm in the room. And then as quickly as it began, the movement stopped. Everything was still and silent and instinct told me that I was truly alone. The poltergeist had been released and had left. It was time for me to do the same. I ran for the door, dashed out, slammed it behind me and then stood there breathing heavily. The corridor stretched out on either side of me. Thankfully, I couldn't sense any spirits, but there was someone there. They were shuffling along and they were reassuringly familiar. Professor Halliburton was the head of the archaeological department at the university. He was dressed as always in a very smart, double-breasted suit with a bow tie. When he saw me, he looked concerned. Are you alright? he asked. You look very pale. I did not think the professor would believe me if I told him what had happened, so I decided it was best to lie. Yes, I said. I'm fine, it's just... There are rats in the storeroom, big rats. There's damage, I'm afraid, then. We can't open the door because they'll get out. The professor looked at me for a moment and then said, well, That's unfortunate. I will arrange for a sign to be placed on the door saying, Out of bounds and put in a request for exterminators. There will be a form for that somewhere, and a budget code. I grinned nervously and said, That sounds great. The professor smiled back at me and asked, And in the meantime, am I correct in thinking that you now have some spare time on your hands? I was so going to spend the summer working in the storeroom, I replied. So, yes, I do. Well, excellent, he said. In that case, I have a new project for you. The next morning, I set off for the coast. The professor had provided me with a comprehensive briefing and folders were piled high on the back seat of the hire car, along with a laptop and the other equipment that I would need. I was traveling and I would be working on my own. And that suited me just fine and I whistled tunelessly as the miles sped past.
It was early afternoon when I arrived. The sun shone and the sea was calm. The water looked inviting and for a moment I thought about going for a swim. But even in summer, the sea around England is cold. And then there were the jellyfish to think about and the pollution. I decided that I would go swimming amiss and turn my attention to the job at hand. I had parked up next to one of the bunkers. It was a squat structure constructed of concrete and even after eight decades of being battered by the wind and rain, it still looked extremely sturdy. There was an access door at the back, though the wood from which this had been made had rotted away, and now there was just the remains of the frame leading to the darkness within. I walked around to the front of the bunker, and this was where the observation point was. A long, narrow slit cut into the concrete. The soldiers who had been posted here in World War II would have spent hour after hour standing inside the bunker, peering out through the opening at the sea. Their mission was to watch for invading forces sailing for the mainland. This part of the coast was otherwise deserted, and it would have made an ideal landing point. If enemy ships were sighted, the troops' first actions would be to radio headquarters, and once this was done, the soldiers' orders were to stay and fight the invaders when they made landfall. They were also forbidden to leave the bunker for any reason. It would likely become their tomb. I knew this from the professor's briefing. As anyone knows, England was not invaded during World War II, so none of the men stationed in the bunker met this chilling fate. Still, it must have been cold, and a lonely experience which left the nerves of the bravest stretched to breaking point. I shivered as I imagined this, and then snapped myself back into the here and now and went to fetch the equipment that I would need from the car. This bunker was one of a network that had been established on this section of the coastline. The nearest neighboring bunker to my position was less than a mile away, and I would move on to it next. They had all been abandoned at the end of the war and left to fall into ruin. I was to record the existing structures and look for any artifacts left behind by the troops. The university was being paid to do this by a branch of the government. The professor did not know why an interest was being shown after all these years, though he did air the suspicion that it was to do with spending all of that year's budget so next year's would not be cut. It all comes down to money at the end of the day, he had said. Academic motives take a back seat. And he was right, unfortunately, but as I set up the camera to begin taking the images from which I would construct a 3D digital map of the bunker, I started to forget about the outside world. The past was drawing me in. After capturing the exterior of the bunker, I set up inside. The daylight creeped in, but not enough for the camera, so... I brought a portable light and set it up on a tripod. Once the photography was complete, I began to examine the ground. Working quickly but not rushing, I searched through the dry, dark earth. I uncovered a cigarette lighter missing its top, a fork and what appeared to be a human tooth. It was riddled with decay, and I wondered if there had been some amateur dentistry carried out in the bunker. If one of the soldiers had a bad toothache, this would have been the only practical option. Moving outside the bunker, I found a number of the cans which would have held most of their diet in the ground. It would have been tinned meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There were also clusters of rabbit bones which showed signs of damage from bullets. 
Not the subtlest way of catching fresh food, but out there no one would have cared how many pot shots the soldiers took. None of these finds have you wild factor, but they all helped to build up a picture. I bagged the last of my finds and carried it to the back of the car. I had lost track of time while I was working and noticed for the first time that the sun was dipping over the horizon. I hadn't eaten or drunk anything or put up the tent that I would be sleeping in. First things first, I figured, and I searched through my supplies for a can of beans. It was dark by the time that I had finished my basic meal and I got the tent up, but I wasn't feeling sleepy. I decided to go for a walk and check out the next bunker. I pulled on a coat and grabbed a torch and I set off. I had not seen a single person since I had arrived and, as I had skirted the coast, there was only darkness all around me. There were no boats out at sea and no buildings interrupting the bleak, flat landscape. The only sound was my breathing. The rest of the world could have faded away into nothingness for all that I could see and hear. These thoughts were making me feel unsettled and I was considering turning back when my torch picked out the outline of a bunker. Now that I had come all this way, I might as well keep going, I had decided, and I continued towards the ruin. It appeared identical to the bunker that I had recorded earlier, but would, I knew, have had its own small group of soldiers stationed there. If they had followed their orders to the letter, there would have been no contact between them and the soldiers in the first bunker. They would have been alone in the world until they were stood down. I walked around the outside of the bunker, running the torch beam up and down its pitted concrete walls. The light touched the edges of the observation slot, and as it did so, I heard movement inside, a scrabbling sound that made me jump. I stood stock still and I listened for a moment. But there was nothing. It was silent once again. It must have been a rat, I told myself. A rat or something like it moving around inside the bunker. And I had let it spook me. I shook my head and with rueful smile on my face, it continued around to the back of the bunker in its way in. I played the torch beam across the ground nearest to the opening, expecting to see a rodent scurrying around and when there was no sight of anything furry and four-legged, I stepped inside. The far walls of the bunker were lost in the darkness, so I raised the torch and saw that there was someone in the bunker. The shock of this made me drop the torch and it clattered to the ground. In the second or two that the light had been on them, I had glimpsed a man. He was standing in a corner looking right at me. And now with my eyes adjusting, I could just about make out his face without the help of the torchlight. His expression was still veiled by the darkness. I assumed that he must be homeless and was sleeping rough in the bunker. I took a deep breath to calm myself and I reached down to try and find the torch. It was lying by my feet. The light had been knocked off in the fall and as I picked it up and searched for the switch with my fingers, I said, No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to disturb you. The man's gaze remained fixed on me, but he did not reply. Are you okay? I asked, wondering if he was hurt or ill, out here in the middle of nowhere on his own. He answered with a sigh at first, a strangely guttural, ragged sound, and then he spoke. I am waiting, he said. I've been waiting for so long. 
since the storm and the lightning struck, I had been waiting and watching for the enemy to come. I saw his head tilt to one side. I couldn't see his eyes clearly but felt that they were boring into me, a sensation that made my skin crawl. I suddenly wanted to get away from him. I took a step backwards and as I did so, he stepped towards me and said, Halt. I have waited and I have watched. I have done my duty. And now you are here. I have to know. Are you friend or foe? He took another step towards and finally managed to turn the torch on. Its beam revealed a nightmare. A hideous apparition. The skin of the man's face had rotted away. Darkened to scraps of dead flesh now hung from bones, which shone sickly yellow in the light of the torch. I could see more exposed bones between the torn rags that he wore. They had once been a uniform and I had realized with dawning horror what this thing was. It had been a soldier and this had been its post. Somehow it had remained here, caught between life and death, trapped in an endless vigil. And now it wanted to know, had its enemy come? Was I the invader it had waited and watched for? I held up my hands and said, No, please, I'm not a soldier. I'm not your foe. I'm an archaeologist, a teacher. I'm your friend. Tears were running down my face as I spoke. Terror and sadness mingled inside me as I faced this lost, distorted soul. It was considering me, I could tell. Even with its ravaged features, I could see that it was thinking. Friend, it echoed me and then asked, But what about the war? The war ended in 1945, I told it, almost 80 years ago. It asked no more questions then and walked slowly past me out of the bunker, leaving its post after so many wasted years. I followed. I was no longer afraid. The thing that had been a soldier stood looking out to sea. The waves were crashing gently against the beach as the first traces of dawn appeared at the edges of the sky. I have often thought how beautiful the ocean is, it said, and then it turned to me. I am tired and my time is over. Thank you, friend. I watched as it walked away, down onto the beach and on and into the ocean. I watched as the waves lapped over its body, taking the soldier into its embrace. I stood there for a long while afterwards, feeling weighed down by an immense sadness and then I dragged myself back to the car. I packed up my things and then drove to the bunker where the soldier had been waiting, and I surveyed it and collected the artifacts. I did my job. I couldn't think of what else to do. There were half a dozen bunkers along the stretch of coast, and I meticulously made a record of all of them over the days that followed, and then emailed the professor to tell him that I had completed the project. I still felt very down and without work, to keep me busy, and I felt lost as well. When the professor replied to ask me if I could start work on another project half a day's drive away, I replied with a sense of relief that I could. A few hours later, after going through the attachments and links that the professor sent me, I was back on the road. The destination was a fortification established in the 12th century on a major trade route. Controlling the flow of goods and taking a cut of profits made was a solid business model 
for any nobleman who wanted to build and consolidate their power. The trade route was now a line on the map that only archaeologists used, following a dirt track that overlaid some of the old route for part of the way, and then off-roading in a vehicle that really wasn't made for leaving tarmac. I reached the site. The fortification was reduced to scattered blocks of stone, poking up from untamed undergrowth. The positions, dimensions, and functions of the various areas of the building were impossible to tell by the naked eye alone. They would be specified by the large-scale excavation that was planned for the site next summer. Subject as ever, to funding being in place, I was there to do some preparatory work and decided to make a start straight away. I walked what I believed to be the perimeter of the site and put down marker poles. I would use these to create a basic map. And then I paced out a grid and chose a square towards the center to do a test dig. Thankfully, there wasn't a scrap of litter in sight. Somehow cans and fast food wrappers seemed to find their way into so much of the beautiful English countryside. But the ruins were free of all traces of the modern world. I could have been the only person in the world, or so it felt once more, as I rolled up my sleeves and began to move away the grass and the weeds and a scattering of leaves before starting on the upper layer of earth. I was soon totally focused and the melancholy which had infected me, following my encounter with the soldier it eased. It was evening before I took a break, eating cold stew out of a can and sipping on a carton of fruit juice, while sitting with my back against a block of stone, the glamorous life of an archaeologist. My belly full and feeling a bit queasy, the stew that I had noticed far too late was two years out of date. I then my head against the stone and I closed my eyes. I was just going to rest for a minute before putting in at least another couple of hours of hard work before nightfall. But the stress of the last few days must have caught up with me, and the next thing I knew I was coming around. I was disoriented and damp. The morning dew glistened on the grass and the weeds in me. I stretched and then grimaced at the pain in the back of my head. Serves me right for using a stone as a pillow, I thought, and I smiled despite the discomfort. Once I had poured a bottle of water over my head, which was the nearest thing I was going to get to a shower with my setup, I cleaned my teeth with a twig and ate some crackers and cheese and that was it. I was ready for another day. The professor had not specified how long that I should spend on site. It felt pretty good being out there and I had a few supplies left so I decided to spend another half day excavating by hand and then work on the mapping of the site and I could head back to campus after that. I retrieved my trusty compact shovel from the ground where I had planted it and I returned to the square that I had started clearing. I had found nothing of interest yet so I decided to go deeper. My tuneless whistling filled the air as I dug. Around noon, I struck something solid. I put the spade to one side and cleared the dirt away with my fingers. Before long, I had uncovered a complete human skeleton. It lay on its back and it was not alone. The finger bones of another skeleton were also visible. In my imagination, they seemed to be reaching out for the other skeleton. I got to work on the second set of remains. Although I had slept deeply the night before, I think the recent events must have affected my decision making. 
I should have taken a step back and called my findings in. The professor would have wanted to know as soon as possible, and would most likely have sent additional personnel to help, but I was like a man possessed. I was driven to keep digging and did not pause until the sun was once more dipping in the sky. I got painfully to my feet and looked out over the scene that I had revealed. I had uncovered dozens of skeletons. They were lying together in a pit. Their proximity told me that this was not an ordinary graveyard, where the dead had been laid to rest over a number of years. I could also not see any obvious signs of injuries on the bones. If they had been killed in battle there, there would be clear fractures caused by the impacts of swords and axes. Skulls would be cracked and teeth smashed. The reasoned alternative this left was that I was looking at the burial site of people who had died as a result of disease, of some mass outbreak of a fatal malady. I wiped sweat from my brow with my sleeve and I swallowed. My mouth suddenly felt very dry. I had read of incidences where mass graves such as this had been uncovered by archaeologists and where traces of ancient diseases had been found. Still active cells that could have infected those working on the excavations. I swore to myself, I needed to put some distance between myself and this potentially hazardous place. Only just as I was turning to walk away, I noticed there was something moving in the pit. There were dark specks among the bones. There were flies, I realized. A few dozen at first, I thought. A small cloud of insects hovering around the bones. But the closer I looked, the more flies that I saw. There were hundreds darting and dancing in the air. The earth beneath and between the skeletons appeared to be moving as well, because it was thick with flies, crawling over the soil and onto the bones. Within seconds, the bones were covered, and then to my horror, the flies began to swarm. There were thousands now, and the air itself grew dark as the flies rose and spread and intertwined. Disgust rippled through me as more and more flies appeared, yet I couldn't take my eyes off this repulsive spectacle, not even as the storm of the flies came closer and closer to me. They were starting to brush against my face and my fingers where I tried to push them away. I felt them landing in my scalp, crawling across my lips. I saw dark, distorted shapes as they almost touched my eyes. I breathed, the flies in, felt the soft, wet grits of their bodies in my mouth and spat them out. They were starting to cover me as they had covered the dead. I cried out in horror, I couldn't help myself, and the flies welcomed the invitation that my open mouth offered and more rushed in. I felt my throat clog with the sudden mass of them and I began to choke. I needed to somehow get away from them. If I didn't, I would suffocate. I stumbled backwards, fell, got back up to my feet and started to run. The car was close and I reached it, pulled the door open and clambered in. I slammed the door. My skin was still crawling with flies and a host of them filled the car, but no more seemed to be getting in. I spat again and coughed and retched to try to clear my throat, and I wiped my eyes, smearing the bodies of flies against my skin. I had left the key in the ignition and still half-blind, managed to find it by touch and turned it. The engine kicked into life and the car lurched forwards. I grabbed the steering wheel desperately with both hands as I slammed down my foot onto the accelerator. Getting out of there was the only thing that I cared about. 
and I did not see the block of stone that was sticking up out of the ground until it was too late. The car hit it with a sickening jolt and the world went dark. Until the point of light flared and then another, and I opened my eyes. Intense pain tore along my nerves and I tensed. Tears rolled down my face, and then the first wave of agony passed. I tried to focus, saw the windscreen was cracked and smoke drifted from the engine beneath the crumpled bonnet. The stone remnant of the fortification that it had struck stood firm. In those first seconds of consciousness, I had forgotten the flies. But now I jumped in shock when I saw that my lap and my legs and my arms and hands, they were covered in dead flies. They were on the steering wheel as well and over the dashboard and the pedals. And outside the car, the ground was carpeted with them. I didn't know how long I had been out for but it seemed the flies' lives had been brief. They had flared, but now they were reduced to thousands and thousands of tiny corpses. I opened the door of the car and I fell out. The air was still and silent and I was alone. I stood propped up against the car. Relief and hysteria blurred into one overwhelming emotion, and I started to weep. It was over, I thought. I had survived. I would have to walk out of there, but that was okay. I rubbed my face and I felt nauseous and had a terrible taste in my mouth. And there was a horrible smell as well, one that I did not remember. It seemed to be coming from the pit where the skeletons were. With the fresh dread arising through my body, I felt my attention drawn back to the bones and the earth beneath. The smell was getting worse. It was the rank stench of decay of rotting flesh and spore-riddled matter. I started to gag. I had thought this nightmare was ending, but I couldn't have been more wrong, because something was emerging from the ground. It was pushing the bones to one side as the soil fell away from its grotesque body. It was tall and slender and swayed like a snake that was poised to attack. Its flesh was covered in open sores. Pus dripped from these and clung to skin drained of all color. Its face was a twisted hybrid of a man and beast, with a mouth that looked like it had been made by the cut of a ragged blade. This crude slash opened, exposing jagged teeth. Above this fearsome maw, the creature's eyes were dark and unblinking orbs, and they were fixed on me. And they remained so, as the creature's body dipped, and it started to slither towards me. I felt feverish with terror, and I knew that I was about to die. And then cold touched my face, an icy ripple of air, and I heard a voice, a whisper. You released me. It was the poltergeist. It had returned and it was saying, You released me from the blade. This placed me in your debt, so I followed you. And now I will repay. As the last of its words fell into place, the ripple grew rapidly into a strong spiraling wind that began to lift the corpses of the flies back into the air. It lifted the flies in the dirt with them, and then the wind began to rage. It tore the bones from the resting place and spanned them through the air. It ripped the car from the ground and ripped up the block of stone into which the car had crashed, and they joined the melee of debris, which was spinning faster and faster. And the creature paused and looked up and its eyes grew wide as the debris began to fall onto it. The skull smashed against it, 
Ribs shattered over it. Dirt and dead flies shot into it. Then the car on the block of stone had crashed onto it, crushing it and killing it. As suddenly as it had begun, the spectral storm had ended, and I was left alone in the ruins of the ancient fortification. It was a still, clear evening, and I had survived. The poltergeist had paid the debt that it felt it owed. It had saved me and laughed. I stood there, feeling amazed and grateful, and I watched the sun fall below the horizon. The strangest of days was complete. We found a town that doesn't exist on any maps. Written by Zach Frost This probably isn't the smartest idea to post this here, but I really have nowhere else to turn. People need to know about this, even if it's the last thing that I ever do. By the time you read this, I'll probably be dead, or vanished mysteriously like everyone else who's been unfortunate enough to stumble down this rabbit hole. And that's exactly how it began, too. A rabbit hole on the internet that kept leading me deeper and deeper, like the countless others that I've seen before. Cicada3301, The Finders, LHOHQ, Missing411, Eritas, 11BX1371, Markovi and Parallax Denigrate, Number Stations, The Wyoming Incident, and all the others. You've probably seen them too, or you've at least heard of them. If you're anything like me because you're here, I'm guessing you are. You follow these mysteries when they crop up. Most of the time, they end up in a rather anticlimactic way. Some artistic project. An ARG or the majority just being a dead end, which devolves into endless speculation. Not this time. Jagabas is different. Me and my friends have spent years following these sorts of things along with various endeavors and urban exploration and abandoned locations. We've had some odd encounters and weird things happen to us, but nothing that could be considered a concrete proof of something haunted or supernatural. A buddy of mine, Ruko, works as a petroleum scout. Basically, he flies all over the country trying to find promising future drill sites. Recently, he was out in a remote town known as Thompson in northern Manitoba looking for new potential locations when he found something odd. He explained that he had been going over public ordinance records around the city, and he found something weird. I'll probably butcher this explanation, so if anybody knows better, feel free to correct me. From what I understood, he had the blueprints of buildings, pipelines, and underground wires. They, of course, have certain mandates that must be followed that prevent them from drilling too near existing structures. He explained that he was comparing these blueprints when he noticed a section that didn't match up with a satellite imaging. He then said a bunch of scientific stuff which I didn't understand, which basically meant that the blueprints indicated that this particular area was supposed to be nothing but forest, but the satellite imaging had contradicted that. He said it looked as though someone had intentionally doctored both the images and blueprints, but wasn't able to make them both accurately match. He spent some time researching the history of the area, but he couldn't find much of anything online or in historical records. He gave me the coordinates of the area too, 
but like him, I couldn't find much of anything. I'll be honest, I really didn't think that there was too much to it, but Ruko seemed adamant that something about it was weird. He made sure to lecture me about the plethora of weird reports from the Canadian North, and although chilling, I failed to see how it related to his discovery. Our correspondence went on for months about it, even after Ruko and his team had it deemed the location unsuitable. He just couldn't seem to let it go, even managing to get some of our other friends enraptured with the mystery. Eventually, he sent a message to me one night with a new development. There's a town out there, he wrote. What? How do you know? I wrote back. One of the locals told me about it after we put down a few drinks. He said that he didn't like talking about it, but he knew that there was a town there many years ago. He doesn't know what happened to it though, or even what its name is. His words didn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay, but if it is a town, then why wouldn't it show up on Google Maps? Exactly. It's like somebody has gone through a great deal of effort to erase it. I felt chills rolling down my spine reading that, but still didn't know whether to buy it. In our modern day of computers and GPS, it's hard to think that an entire town could go undocumented, but apparently that was the case. I'm gonna go out there. I had a feeling that response was coming, and it made my gut churn. When? I've always felt as though if I were in a horror movie, I would be the first one to die. That's partially due to my bad luck, but more so is my willingness to indulge in questionable ideas for the sake of curiosity. In my defense, Ruko managed to rope in two of our other friends as well, Panzerwaffel and Dunkleostis. I know it's needlessly edgy to go by codenames, but I would rather not reveal the real ones. So, I'll just refer to them as the names that they use online. So the four of us kept researching for a few more weeks and after we finally managed to align our schedules, we set a date. We all met up in Winnipeg to begin our journey. It was about an eight hour drive up to Thompson, and from there only Ruko knew the rest, but he assured us that it wasn't much further beyond that. The vast country roads of the Canadian Midwest soon unveiled before us giving us front row seats of endless oceans of dirt and prairies. The stifling atmosphere of the city soon gave way to the fresh air of the wilderness, so at the very least it was a good break from the rat race. The four of us discussed theories and Joe to most of the way out there, until Panzerwaffel raised an interesting point. And so I saw this thread online where this guy was talking about, his time working mobile security stuff, he said that he was former military and got recruited after into this private security firm that went all over the world. It didn't really seem that interesting until he mentioned going to a hidden town inside of Thompson. The rest of us perked up at that mention. Yeah, he was saying this area has a lot of strange reports of cryptids and weird sightings. Wendigos, aliens, Bigfoot, you name it. I looked to Ruko in the driver's seat. Is that true? First I've heard of it, I mean, the Canadian North is pretty well known for strange sightings, so I'm not too surprised. Dunkleostis then cut in. Man, we are not prepared for stuff like that. I don't know about this. Panzer chuckled and leaned over to pat him on the shoulder. A little late to back out now, bro. He laughed again, 
but Donk looked no more reassured. Before long, the cities had vanished in the rear view, leaving only the endless expanse of road and flat grassy prairies in all directions. We made good time thanks to Ruko lead footing the pedal, and we arrived in Thompson around 3pm. The town itself was little more than a few blocks, a couple of restaurants and a hospital, which was mostly what I had expected from its remote location. Thompson is essentially the final outpost of the Canadian North. Beyond it lies a vast expanse of untamed wilderness that stretches for hundreds of kilometers in every direction. There are a few indigenous localities and scattered throughout the area, but most are accessible only by flying, or I guess walking for a few months if you're a lunatic. The point is, all the roads stop at Thompson, but our destination was further beyond. Thankfully, not much further though, and Ruko assured us that we could be there within the hour. But first, we decided to stop at one of the town's diners and get ourselves some food. The waitress got us a booth by the window and got us menus. We spent a few minutes glancing through until she returned for our orders. The restaurant had a few patrons at the time, and our food arrived quite soon after. The chicken fried salmon wasn't half bad, and the others seemed to enjoy their meals as well. The waitress returned after we had finished and laid out the tab, peppering us with a few more questions. She obviously knew that we weren't local, and we told her that we had made the trek up from Winnipeg for a camping trip. She mentioned a few stops that she thought we should check out, but I can't recall what they were now. I looked at Ruko and could tell what he was thinking before he even said it. So, I heard a rumor that there's a town out here that doesn't appear in any maps. He paused and the waitress cocked her head at him. Do you know anything about that? She seemed taken aback and her mouth curled into an uncertain grimace. I don't know anything about that. Have a good rest of your day. She then abruptly turned and walked away from the booth. The rest of us exchanged some glances of our own as we laid a pile of cash on the table to cover the bill. Clearly, she wasn't being entirely truthful with us, or so it seemed. Her sudden shift from cheerful to almost panicked unsettled me a bit though. We all loaded back into Ruko's truck and headed out soon after. Several residents were out on the streets then, and all of them seemed to stare at us with vacant expressions as we drove through town. It seemed a bit hostile of what one would expect of a small Canadian town, but perhaps I just misread the vibes. The roads beyond Thompson were strictly dirt and gravel, and the further that we drove, the less maintained they became. I've got to be vague when describing the exact route we traveled because I don't want to be responsible for anyone trying to go find this place themselves. There's quite a few campgrounds around the area, and beyond that, roads that seemingly go nowhere at all. It was around this point when cell service became non-existent, and not just zero bars but full-on lack of connection to a provider altogether. We had anticipated that, of course, but it felt a bit unnerving that if anything went wrong then, we were on our own. We kept driving along the trail for close to an hour, bending and weaving deeper into the woods and further from civilization. The area around seemed truly wild, with no road signs nor any real sign of human presence at all. Roko had pointed to the spot on the map that we were headed, and it made me question why any town would be built in such a place. It had to be an old mining town, I thought, but none of us knew for certain. 
Eventually, the trail split into three different pathways. After some debate, we took the path on the right which was heavily degraded. We only made it about half a click before the road simply became too narrow. We got out and had a quick look around, but it was clear that there wasn't much there. After taking a good 20 minutes to help Ruko back his truck out, we finally returned to the split in the path. It was then that we noticed that there was what appeared to be a pole lying off the road in the woods. Duncan Panzer went and grabbed it and sure enough, found a sign attached to it as well. It was so rusted that any previous message was indecipherable, but it seemed to indicate that we were close. We followed the path for about a kilometer before something caught our attention on the side of the road. Ruko slowed the truck down and we realized that it was yet another trail. This one appeared gutted, as though it once had pavement or concrete but had since been removed. The ground was flat and graded, but clearly untraveled and overgrown with weeds and shrubs. This has to be it, Ruko said, glancing at his map. He put the truck in park and the four of us stepped out. There we eyed the long-forgotten trail before us. But aside from the suspiciously flat terrain, there was little indication anything else was out there. You sure this is it? I mean, I don't see much. Dunk asked and Ruko nodded, stepping forward. Oh yeah, no question. A road used to run right through here. That observation was an unusual one, and I wasn't the only one who had picked up on it. Why remove the road? I asked. Ruko turned back, not seeming to catch my draft. I mean, I had assumed a town this far away from everything would be an old mining or lumber town that just ran its course and was abandoned when the work had dried up. But if they went to the trouble of removing the road that led to it, I let the words hang in the air, and Ruko understood that. Then someone is trying to hide it. Panzer and Donk looked at one another, and a sudden air of apprehension seemed to set in. It's always a bit nerve-wracking walking into abandoned locations, but this one seemed different somehow. What if it was some government base or some Area 51 type stuff? Panzer asked. So, Area 52? Dunk replied with a chuckle. I glanced around, but once again it was clear that we were wild and truly in the middle of nowhere. If that were the case, I assume they would have arrested us by now. I replied, gesturing around to the endless blockade of trees. No one's here. Dunk then scoffed. Oh, just because you don't see them don't mean that no one's here. He was right, but still the thought remained. Ruko seemed to ponder a moment, before glancing back down the hidden trail. Well, there's only one way to find out. The four of us got back into his truck and Ruko maneuvered it onto the overgrown trail. Leaves crunched and the chassis rumbled around as he began to drive forward upon it. It was rough, but not as rough as nature would have been. We drove onward at a reduced rate for about five minutes, seeing nothing but trees and thickets on either side. Eventually, the road began to curve left, and soon after something emerged on the side of the trail. It looked like a telephone pole at first, a dark brown column made of wood standing about 15 feet tall. As we got closer, a series of grooves and markings emerged upon it. It looked like the type of totem pole into the top, set a small wooden figurine of what appeared to be a bird of some kind. 
Haruko slowed his truck down beside it and we all stared up in silence. Looks like they didn't remove everything. Haruko broke the silence, glancing at me in the front passenger seat. Is that an owl on top? Panzer asked. Yeah, it looks like it. Ruko replied. Man, what was that movie from a few years ago in Alaska? You know the one where they think they're seeing owls but it's actually aliens? Dunk asked. Oh, the fourth kind, Panzer replied. Almost in unison, we had all seemed to eye the owl at the pinnacle once again. Sure hope that has nothing to do with our situation, Panzer concluded. We remained there for another minute or so until Ruko simply put the truck into drive and continued moving forward. Around the next bend in the woods was all it took to find it. A row of buildings emerged in the distance, dark, neglected, and empty. Ruko's truck crept slowly onward, allowing more and more of the desolate place to come into view. The walls were wrapped with vines and the streets cracked with weeds and saplings. It almost looked like a scene straight out of an apocalyptic movie, and the derelict streets had clearly stood vacant for a few decades at the least. Ruko pulled his truck to a stop and without a word we all stepped out. Crap, it does exist. Dunk spoke, eyeing the rest of us with a keen smirk. Some of the buildings looked partially burnt, but overall, the majority were mostly untarnished except by the creeping advance of nature. No graffiti on the walls and no obvious signs of a major damage that one would expect from a natural disaster of some kind. As far as we could see, there were no cars there either. It was as if the entire town had just one day decided to get up and leave. Oh, well, someone was here at some point, Panzer spoke up, laying a hand on the rotting hull of an old store. The words, general routine convenience store, were just barely discernible upon the faded oak sign above the door. So, where did they all go? And why was the waitress covering their existence? Dunk replied. I'll admit that I got the same vibe, but I wasn't ready to throw her under the bus yet. If anything, she just seemed afraid to even discuss the topic. I don't know, man, but I do know this don't look like no Area 52 to me. Panzer and Dung shared a laugh. Ruko, meanwhile, had ventured further away to the intersection and paused to glance at something laying in the street. He turned back and met my stare, giving a nod of his head for me to join him. I did just that, and once at his side, I found what held his interest. Lying in the ground was what appeared to be an old placard, heavily worn but with the words still mostly discernible. Jagabus Town Center. Jagabus, that's the name of this town, I suppose. I spoke. Ruko nodded, averting his gaze ahead. Sound familiar? I asked, but Ruko just shook his head. And down the block about 200 meters was a much larger building than the others. Double swaying doors laying mangled at the entrance and wedged open, while the hull of the building was riddled with holes and broken windows. The building looked in much worse condition than the others and naturally that drew our attention. Panzer and Dunk joined us and we all approached. The holes in the walls almost looked like a bullet in packs but we couldn't be certain. As we got near, it became evident that it was some old-fashioned hospital or infirmary. Inside was remarkably clean considering the outer conditions. There was still broken debris scattered on the linoleum, 
But unlike most abandoned buildings, there was no sign of graffiti or previous squatters. And probably because nobody in their right mind would venture that far out. The building only had a main hallway and about half a dozen rooms and so searching through it didn't take long. And there wasn't much to see anyways. Just file cabinets and medical equipment a couple of decades old. What was interesting was the stash of medication still in the cabinet, many of which were dated to the early 90s. Things were becoming a bit more unnerving then, as it was evident that whatever had happened there had happened quickly, and its residents had very little time to pack up. That is, if they even made it out at all. Hey guys, look at this. Ruko called out from down the hallway. After reaching his side, we found that he was examining a hatch on the floor. He managed to wrench it open, revealing a ladder which led into a dark passage below. We took turns, peering down below and saw a narrow, dirt corridor that stretched in both directions for quite a considerable distance. Who wants to go down first? Ruko asked, a smirk evident behind his mask. None of us answered back, and instead, we all just seemed to silently inspect the passageway beneath us. Something was bothering me then, something lingering heavy in the air. I still don't know how to explain it, but my gut was telling me that this was not a place that I should be. Ruko eventually answered his own question by climbing onto the ladder and beginning to descend. A moment later, he touched down into the dirt below. He lit his flashlight and pointed it up ahead and back behind the two extensions of the passage. What do you see? Dunk asked. Not much, and just looks like a tunnel. Maybe an old mine, Ruko called back. Why would a mine be underneath the hospital? Dunk asked, glancing to us. Poor planning, maybe? Panzer replied. As they conversed, something suddenly moved outside the window. I was the only one who saw it, and I didn't see it very well, but it definitely looked like a shadow darting away as I looked. What the heck was that? I pointed it out, and the others quickly swiveled towards the window. I scurried towards the window and glanced outside cautiously, but saw nothing but an empty field of overgrown wild grass. What is it? Dunk asked. I don't know, I just I saw something move. By that point, the sun was very low on the sky, and the darkness was encroaching fast. The others were clearly feeling a bit unnerved by that point, as was I, and we all seemed to reach the silent conclusion that it was time to leave. We shouldn't stay after dark. We can come back tomorrow. Dunk stated as he headed towards the front door. Panzer then returned to the hatch and yelled down into it. Hey, Ruko, time to go. He waited a few seconds, but there was no response. Hey, Ruko, you hear me? He called again, but once more there was no reply. Panzer then sighed and knelt down to the hatch. Hey, man, we gotta go. Can you hear me? He waited a moment but heard nothing. Panzer then waved us over and climbed into the hatch. Begrudgingly, I followed, knowing that I couldn't let him go alone. Dunk and I soon followed him down the ladder, finding ourselves in some underground tunnel a moment later. Panzer shined his flashlight forward and behind us, but we saw nothing but an empty passage. Where the heck did he go? Panzer asked. Shh, keep your voice down. Dunk shushed back, kneeling in the dirt and pointing out the footprints. He went this way. The three of us moved onward until reaching the bend in the tunnel. 
Around it, we saw the passage mushroom outward into a substantially larger room. Several large columns stood floor to ceiling, decorated in an entirely unexpected Greek-Roman sort of architecture. I'm no expert in that stuff, but the columns looked they would have been more of a home in the Pantheon, rather in some buried tunnel in North Canada. The floor too appeared to be a scuffed marble, which I can't imagine would be easy or cheap to install. At the far end of the room, my heart sunk as I spotted a person kneeling to the ground in the shadows. Ruko, is that you? The person whipped their head around, confirming that it was Ruko. He put his shushing finger to my mouth on his mask and he gestured us over. What's wrong? I asked. Ruko silently pointed down the passage in front of us. My heart skipped a beat as I stared into the fathomless dark tunnel before us, but of course I saw nothing. Behind us, a Panzer and Dunk entered the middle of the chamber and glanced around, clearly as mystified as I was. They spread out around the room to inspect the area, as Ruko and I continued staring. I asked Ruko about what he saw and he just said that he thought he saw someone, but he didn't elaborate. Hey guys, look at this, Dunk whispered. I turned to see him standing in front of a large mural on the wall. As I got close, I saw all sorts of squiggled lines and symbols engraved upon the wall. The entire thing was probably 5 meters wide and 3 tall. The entire portrait spread out almost like a massive spider web, but I couldn't tell what I was looking at. It's a map, Dunk declared. I didn't think it likely at first glance, but as I continued staring, I realized that it could be onto something. That theory had some bewildering implications, however. Dunk then lifted a hand and pointed at a spot on the lower left. This is where we came in. These symbols must be entrances or exits. The spot he pointed had a rectangular symbol with a line down the middle, and I spied dozens of others around the mural. I traced the route that we had traveled to get there, and it did seem to match up. We hadn't traveled far, but if that was actually a map, and... It wasn't any way to scale, then the entire system was absolutely colossal. The small area that we had traversed barely even registered when compared with the whole thing, and its entirety must have comprised dozens upon dozens of kilometers worth of tunnels. Who would build something like that, and how and why was it done? There was quite a variety of other symbols on there as well, but with no map index, we had little context as to what they represented. Towards the upper center of the map was a large open space, with a unique symbol within it. It was almost as if all the other pathways were leading towards it, which of course made it an interesting sight. Unfortunately, it was probably several kilometers worth of tunnels to get there. What the heck is this place? Panzer asked, but I think it was more rhetorical than anything. There was this odd scent lingering in the air, but I couldn't place it. This wasn't my first adventure in urban exploration, but this time felt different. Something about the place was deeply unsettling, and although I tried just writing it off as my nerves, the feeling wouldn't dissipate. Oh crap, Roko suddenly proclaimed in a whisper. I turned and saw him slowly backing away from the passageway. I was about to ask what it was when I saw it and my heart stood still. Ahead of him in the corridor was the silhouette of someone obscured in shadow. The air seemed to drain from the room in an instant, as did the breath from my lungs. 
the person in the tunnel before us remained motionless and silent. Roko had then ignited his flashlight which beamed against the ground. With a quivering hand, he began to lift it towards the person in the tunnel. I said a silent prayer hoping that it would simply be an angry hobo, but I couldn't have been more wrong. Its face was gaunt, with gleaming eyes that reflected the light of the flashlight like an animal's would. Jagged teeth and an overbite protruded from chapped lips, and a narrow tongue seemed to taste the air like a snake. The second the light touched its eyes, it let out this god-awful wail. We took off without a second thought. In only a few seconds, we had reached the hatch and began rapidly clamoring back up. I looked back but saw no one pursuing us. We slammed the hatch behind us and we all breathed a small sigh of relief. For the briefest of moments, I felt that we were safe, but that notion didn't last. There's something out there, you see that? Dung suddenly spoke, pointing out the broken window on the far end of the building. Sure enough, the trees were bustling and clearing something was moving back within them. We didn't dare stick around to see what it was and immediately made a mad dash for the truck. As we filed inside, I saw shapes and silhouettes emerging from deep within the woods, but remaining far enough so that I couldn't get a closer look at them. As the headlights passed over them, I saw several pairs of gleaming eyes leering back at us. They were humanoid in appearance, but decidedly not human. Thankfully, we made it out without incident, and in no time we were back on the main road and speeding off back towards Thompson. We got back rather quickly compared to the journey out, and spent nearly the entire ride discussing what we had witnessed out there. Roko stayed rather silent, and by the time I realized that we had actually driven past Thompson, we were quite a ways past it. I asked why he hadn't stopped in Thompson, and his response was not at all what I expected. We're being followed. His words reverberated through the truck like a slow rolling thunder. The suburban behind us turned out from a dark road shortly after we left that abandoned town. The three of us just stared silently at him and he spoke again. Don't look back. I then caught a glance of the gas gauge and realized that we were approaching E. Thankfully, a gas station wasn't too far off. But of course, the main worry was our pursuers. Shortly after that, we turned off the highway, and sure enough, the headlights behind us mirrored the move. We pulled into a brightly lit gas station, and the black suburban with tinted windows followed, pulling into the opposite side of the pump. Iroko stepped out, and I got out with him. My heart was throbbing like crazy, but part of me wasn't even certain the suburban was actually following us. We were sitting ducks, though with no one around aside from a single station attendant in their booth. Rocco approached the pump, slid his card and retrieved the nozzle as he slipped it into the gas lot. As soon as the gas began pumping, the driver's side door of the Suburban opened, and out stepped a tall man with a bald head, wearing a suede black coat. I slipped my right hand behind my back and gripped the dagger in my belt, but knew if the man had a gun it probably wouldn't make much of a difference. The man casually rounded the front of his truck and came to a stop in front of us who stared back defiantly. Something about his presence was deeply foreboding, like he was a simple Minuteman for some nefarious cult or group. With what we had seen earlier, that didn't seem out of the realm of possibility. His eyes sent chills down my spine like there was nothing human behind his stare, 
The two of them just remained silent, deadlocked in a stare. Can I help you? Ruko finally broke the silence, but the man said nothing. His expression unaltered and his stance unchanged. Mercifully, the gas nozzle clicked behind us. Ruko turned and removed it, opening his driver's side door and getting back in. The bald man then diverted his gaze to me and he smiled. Drive safe. With that simple phrase, he turned and got back into his vehicle. The windows were heavily tinted, but with the way the shadow bent on the passenger side, it was evident that someone else was with him. Ruko then rolled down my window. Let's go. They didn't follow us any further, but the brief interaction left its mark on us. The four of us discussed it the entire way back, coming to the consensus that they were either government operatives or cult members. I shudder when I think of those things at that time, but clearly, someone has gone to great lengths to hide them. Posting to begin with is not a great idea, I know, but I had to do something. This all happened about a week ago now, and once Ruko dropped us off, I haven't seen him since. No one's heard from him, and his phone is off, and he hasn't been on any of the online places that he normally frequents. The police have been notified, but there's not much to go off for them. Apparently, he never ever returned home the night after we got back. I hope that he's okay, and Ruko, if you're reading this, please contact me. I've been looking around online and even in public libraries, but so far, I haven't been able to find any information on the town of Jagabas. If anyone knows anything about it, please feel free to share. But in the meantime, I just hope whoever that bald guy works for it doesn't decide to come looking for us. I'm a park ranger, and I found a town that doesn't exist. Written by Park Ranger Baker I must be going crazy. I can see a town that doesn't exist. My name is Samuel Baker. I'm a Yellowstone National Park Ranger, and I need some advice. I've spent my entire career fighting wildfires for the National Park Service. And after two decades in the field, I thought that I had seen everything. Then about four hours ago, an entire town just appeared in the middle of Yellowstone National Park. And the other ranger and I are the only ones who've been in it. We're not alone, however, as you might expect from something appearing out of nowhere inside one of America's most famous parks. The town is home to many people, some of whom who have been there for years. They all seem perfectly normal, but they aren't aware that they live inside a national park. My partner Thomas was the first to notice the town. He had driven into the valley a few hours before dawn one morning and saw a brand new sign on the road. Welcome to Hungry Horse, it read. When he drove past the next bend in the road, he saw the motel. That's when he turned around to come and get me. The two of us had driven up the valley together in our trusty old Chevy Blazer and taken the long way around because we didn't want to pass through the town until we were sure of what it was. We parked at the base of the mountain and hiked up. We walked across the railroad tracks and passed a small gas station with a lone oil drum full of diesel fuel and another filled with water. The street was lined with old cars some of which looked like they had been there for a while, others which had probably just arrived that morning. 
Hungry Horace wasn't a ghost town, or even abandoned. It was thriving. Thomas and I entered the town cautiously, because despite appearances, this place could be dangerous. While we didn't run into any trouble, we did notice that everything seemed indifferent to the fact that they just appeared out of nowhere. Most of them ignored us completely, although a few gave us strange looks. Some of these people look familiar, I said, looking over at Thomas and he nodded. Yeah, I know what you mean, Sam. I recognized a couple people in the diner, too. It's weird. It's weird. Those words echoed in my head as I watched a man carrying a bucket walk down the sidewalk. It's weird. I repeated silently to myself. My eyes followed his movements. The man carried himself with confidence and purpose, but he never looked up at where he was walking. Instead, he stared straight ahead and continued forward without looking back once. He disappeared around the corner of a building, and I noticed another person staring directly at me. He was tall and thin, wearing a black hiking jacket. His face was pale and he was bald. He was standing in the doorway of a small coffee shop. He reminded me of the missing hiker that we had searched for last week. That's when I realized why I recognized some of the people here. They are all people who have vanished from national parks. That's how we found out that almost every single person in Hungry Horse had been reported missing from national parks. We spoke to everyone we could find. Some refused to talk. Others were friendly enough. But none of them knew anything about why they were there. As far as they were concerned, they lived in Hungry Horse, Montana. They weren't sure exactly when they had arrived there. A lot of them couldn't remember much before arriving in Hungry Horse. They also told us that they had been here for years. Many of them had been born and raised in the town and believed it was the real deal. They all knew the townsfolk by name and went to school with them. One woman, an older lady named Irene, told us that she had no idea that she had been reported missing. She worked at the local hardware store and had been living in Hungry Horse for more than 45 years. What about your husband? I asked. Do you have children? Grandchildren? She shook her head. No, I've never married. How do you feel about being here? Do you miss anywhere else? Your family, maybe. Again, she shook her head. Not really. This is my home. As far as she knew, this was the only home she had ever known. I tried to ask if she missed her family, but she only smiled and told me that. Her family was right here in Hungry Horse, Montana. We thanked her and left the hardware store. Hopping back into our park ranger truck and we drove deeper into the town. I really don't like this, Sammy, Thomas said. I've had a feeling of being watched ever since we entered town. I looked over at him. He was staring at a man standing by a large semi-trailer outside of the diner. The man was holding a jug of milk. I couldn't about think of the hiker that we had found dead last week. Sam, are you listening to me? I snapped back to reality and I looked at my partner. Thomas said I started quivering in fear. Sorry, what'd you say? I said that I think we should leave. I don't want to be here anymore. I looked around the town, 
There were so many people here, so many people who shouldn't be here. All of them were perfectly normal. Some of them even knew each other. How could there be so many people in a town that doesn't exist? I agree. Uh, let's go, I said. We drove away from the town and back to the ranger cabin. Thomas was still shaking. I'm going to call this in, he said. This whole thing is nuts, but we better document it anyway. I mean, how could an entire town, full of missing people, just appear in the middle of Yellowstone? I nodded. Okay, I'll be in the cabin. I think I need some time to process all this. I sat down on the couch and I closed my eyes. It all felt unreal. I kept thinking about the hiker that we had found out in the woods last week. He had died while out on a hike in the wilderness. He had been alone and confused. But I just saw him alive and well, in a town that doesn't exist. I opened my eyes and looked around. I took in a deep breath and I let it out. It smelled like wood smoke and pine. I stood up and I started pacing the room. What am I supposed to make of all this? I asked myself. Is it some kind of sick joke? Did the government put a town in Yellowstone for some reason? What if it's not a town? Maybe it's a cover-up for something worse. I thought before zoning out. There was a knock on the door. It startled me out of my daydream. Uh, come in, I yelled. Two men came inside, both dressed in black suits. Are you the one in charge here? One of them asked. I looked at him and nodded. The guy was wearing a badge on his chest and a gun on his hip. He looked like an FBI agent. I'm about to go and talk to them, and I don't know if they'll believe me. What do I do? First off, let me clarify some things from my earlier update. I was a wildland firefighter up until a year ago when I decided that I needed a change of pace. And they weren't FBI agents. They said they were from a private company that deals with the otherworldly. I sat in front of the two men, waiting for them to start asking questions. So, do you know why I've been assigned to this case? The taller of the two said. You're the only one in the park who knows anything about this. I nodded. Thomas also knows, but I think you guys already know that. It's pretty weird. The town you described doesn't exist. Not according to the GPS and the satellite data. Yes, it does. I answered, surprised. It's a lie, the second man said. He had short blonde hair and wore glasses. We checked every single point on the map, every house, every business. There is nothing there. No way. You can't tell me you've been everywhere in the park and haven't noticed it. I said angrily. When I first came to the park, I saw the sign for Hungry Horse. I thought that it was a joke at first, but then I saw the motel, the gas station, the diner, the hardware store, and I saw the people inside of them. The man with the glasses nodded slowly. But we've checked every inch of the surrounding area. We've looked at aerial photos, satellite images. We've even flown over the valley with a helicopter. Well, maybe you should have a look again. Maybe you missed something. I said defiantly. We did. There's nothing there. It's not possible. Do I have to show you where it is myself then? I asked. 
Both men traded glances, and then the shorter one nodded. Very well. If you're so sure you've seen something unusual, we'll take you there. Thank you, I said. I got out of my chair and followed the two men out of the cabin. They were in their early fifties, both with short hair and blue eyes. They were talking quietly to each other as I followed them out of the cabin to their unmarked car. Now, the man with the glasses said, if you could just lead us to your town. Sure, I replied. We drove deeper into the park. Our vehicle was equipped with a topographical GPS system, which made it easy to navigate through the rugged terrain. After an hour of driving, we came to a hill overlooking a wide valley. We passed the sign for Hungry Horace. Did you see the sign? I yelled. The men just looked at each other. I'm sorry, what? The shorter one asked. There's a sign here, it says Hungry Horace, right? The man shook his head. I don't see anything. He pulled off the road and stopped right before the sign. He turned off the engine and looked at me. Maybe we should get out and look again, he suggested. I agreed and got out of the car and ran over to the sign. It's right here, I shouted. He walked up behind me and looked over my shoulder. What the heck is this? It's a sign. It says Hungry Horse, I yelled. He looked at me and glared. I grabbed his arm and pulled him over to where I could see the sign. Can't you read? He pulled away and rolled his eyes. Read what? It says Hungry Horse, I yelled. What are you talking about? He yelled back. I pointed at the sign. Look, the name of the town. And the man sighed. There's no sign there. I got angry and was about to yell at the agent when, out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone walking towards us from out of the woods in the direction of the town. It was Irene, the older woman from the hardware store. My eyes lit up and I pointed at her. Irene! I yelled excitedly. The agent turned to face the old woman. His eyes widened in surprise and he opened his mouth to say something. But before he could, Irene hit him and sent him flying into a tree. Well, you shouldn't have come back, Ranger, she hissed. With lightning speed, she charged the agent with the glasses. Run, I yelled and jumped into the car. But it was too late for the agent. Irene had already snapped his neck. I frantically ran back to the unmarked car and tried to start it. The engine sputtered and failed to turn over. Irene stood directly in front of me, blocking my path back to the cabin. What the heck are you? I yelled. You should have never come here, she said. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. What the heck is going on? I yelled. She snarled and lunged forward. Her teeth had grown sharp and she had snapped at me, but I evaded her bites and rammed my fist into her stomach. Dang it, I yelled. I grabbed her shoulders and threw her into the side of the car. She slid across the hood and fell to the ground. I jumped around the car and I kicked her once in the ribs. I'm gonna kill you, I said. She smiled. Oh, I've been dead for years, honey. I was about to punch her again when a hand grabbed my arm and yanked me backwards. I spun around and stared at the person who grabbed my arm. It was Thomas, my partner. He had followed the agents and I. What are you doing? I yelled. Don't be stupid. 
We have to get back to the cabin. I looked at him and shook my head. No, we can't run from these things, I said, flabbergasted. What the heck is wrong with you? He slapped me hard across the face. Shut up. Just shut up. I rubbed my cheek and looked at Thomas in disbelief. What are you talking about? His eyes were wide open with panic. I heard Irene starting to get up. You have to leave now. Right now. He grabbed me by the collar and pushed me into the driver's seat of the dead agent's car. Get in, he yelled, and drive. What about you? I asked. I can't fight them anymore. You know how many rangers they've taken, he said. Just get out of here. We just found out about the town yesterday. How do you know all of this? I yelled. You just found out about the town, he replied. The heck does that mean? Just go. I'll keep Irene occupied. Get back to the cabin and read my journal. I can't believe it, he nodded. I know. I pulled a 180 and sped back down the road towards the cabin. I saw Thomas jump at Irene in the rearview mirror. He looked bigger than he usually does. He was standing on top of her, pinning her arms to the ground. Screw you, Irene yelled. Thomas punched her in the face and she went limp. Stay down. The last thing I saw was Thomas running towards the town. I'm back at the cabin and I'm reading through his journal. There's so much that I never knew about him. I finished reading Thomas's journal. I can't believe that I trusted him. Thomas knew everything. He knew what the town was all along. He knew that Irene would come after me and he didn't tell me anything. I feel like such an idiot. Every single national park has one of these towns. He had been the head of a team of people called The Watchers, a branch of a company called ARC, or Anomaly Research Corporation, assigned to monitor Hungry Horse, to make sure that the people who go missing in national parks are found before the town can get to them. Jesus Christ, why didn't I figure this out sooner? Why did I trust him? Not stupid, stupid Sam. I read some more of his journal. It explains that the towns might be sentient and can choose who can see and interact with them. And how national parks are only founded when one of these towns blink into existence. Yellowstone is the first and has the largest town. But the towns aren't the main threat. It's what the people who get taken turn into. When they get taken, their minds are changed and become something else. Something sinister. I flip to another page and it explains that the town doesn't take everyone. Some people are harder for the town to influence and they can resist its power. These people are called Watchers. Watchers can still be taken, but it's rare. And I think Hungry Horace just took the last Watcher in Yellowstone. There's a phone number and a note written inside the front cover of the journal. It says to call the number of Thomas is missing or if he seems off and to tell the person who picks up on the other end that Thomas has been compromised. This is insane, I thought to myself. I set the journal aside and I looked out the window. The sun was setting and it cast a beautiful orange glow over the mountains. I could hear the river flowing nearby. I heard a noise outside and I turned around. A large shadow moved quickly across the trees near the cabin. 
I watched as it approached the edge of the woods. It was Thomas. He didn't look injured at all despite the fight with Irene. I ran to the door and locked it as soon as he had stepped onto the porch. I looked out the window at Thomas. Why aren't you injured? I asked through the window. They can't hurt me anymore, he answered. Who are they? I asked. The town, he whispered. The town, I asked. Yeah, he said. What happened to your team? He's dead. He's gone. Is that why you never told me about the town in the first place? I asked. Well, I didn't want to scare you. How'd you know Irene would come after me? Well, the town let me know. The town, you know what I mean. The town tells you stuff because you're a watcher. Yes, he whispered. What the heck? That's not important. Your journal didn't say the town was intelligent. It's alive. It thinks and it feels. It's a living entity. Its mind is vast and powerful. It talks to you. Yeah, sometimes. What does it say? Everything. Everything. I was dumbstruck. That's impossible. It's true. Now please, let me inside. He loudly begged. But I noticed something was off with his voice. Why do you sound different? I asked. Well, because you're making me nervous. Well, you're freaking me out. Please, let me in. I looked up at him for a few minutes without saying anything. There was something off about his face that made me curious. Something that seemed odd. Finally, I shook my head. I'm sorry, Thomas, I said. He threw his body at the door. Let me in, he shouted. Well, I can't do that, Thomas, I said calmly. I unlocked the gun locker and grabbed the only shotgun that we had. I pointed it at him and waited. Thomas stopped moving and leaned against the door. His breathing became shallow and quick. Sammy, you're my best friend, he started to say. I'm sorry, Thomas, but I can't open the door, I snarled. Stop lying, he yelled. Open the freaking door. He started throwing himself against it again. Panicking, I pushed the table and couch in front of it. Samuel, he screamed. Open this door. I just ignored him and went upstairs and laid on the bed. He kept banging on the door for about an hour. Eventually, he finally stopped, but I could still hear him yelling outside. I think that I might just call that number he wrote down in his journal. Maybe Ark will send someone to deal with Thomas. I dialed the number. It rang three times before a man picked it up and said, Hello, Thomas. I sat there silently. Hello? He asked again. It got Thomas, I yelled. Are you safe? The man asked. No, I'm not safe, I screamed. Thomas has become one of the things from Hungry Horse, and now he's here, and he's trying to break into the cabin. Uh, hold on, he said. We'll send someone out right away. Is anyone else with you? Not just me, I answered. Okay, stay put and don't let him get inside the cabin, he said, and then he hung up. I laid back down on the bed and tried to ignore the sounds coming from downstairs. I could hear Thomas pounding against the door again. I was terrified that Ark wouldn't show up soon enough. And then suddenly, 
I heard a car pull up outside. I jumped off the bed and rushed downstairs and looked out the window. There were men with rifles standing outside. I saw one of them run to the cabin. The banging at the door had stopped. Thomas had noticed them. I heard Thomas roar and the sound of gunshots. I watched as the men loaded Thomas, who was still alive somehow, into the back of the van. The two men got into the van and drove off as another car pulled up to the cabin. A man in a white lab coat stepped out and walked up to the door, knocking on it. Open the door, Sam, and don't make this harder than it has to be. Who the heck are you? My name is Dr. Jade in Oxblood, he said. Well, what do you want? I demanded. I need to talk to you about Thomas. I don't have time for this, just leave me alone, I yelled at him. I heard him sigh and that's when I felt an arm grab my shoulder and something prick my neck. I started to curse and the world faded to black. I woke up on the couch about 30 minutes later. Looking around, I saw that Dr. Oxblood was sitting in a chair across from me. Now that everything has calmed down, you're going to tell me everything you know, he said. I guess I don't have a choice, guys. I'll update you all after I talk with the doctor. Let me explain what happened. Oxblood drove me to the headquarters of Ark, and once there, Dr. Oxblood led me into his office and told me to sit down. He locked the door and sat across from me. The room was filled with bookshelves and pictures of presidents and generals from many different wars. On the walls were weapons that I didn't even recognize. So, tell me about the town, he said. What makes you think I know anything about the town? I asked. Well, I have reason to believe that you are aware of its existence, he said. Well, fine, what do you want to know? Tell me everything you know about the town. Everything? All of it. I told him about the day that Thomas told me about the town. Our trip to Hungry Horse and how Thomas had stayed behind to fight Irene. He listened intently as I spoke. He was taking notes while I talked and occasionally he asked me a question. When I finished telling him everything that he wanted to know, he stood up and walked over to a cabinet and he opened it. He reached inside and pulled out a small silver box and placed it on his desk. What's that? I asked. It's a key, he answered. One day, you'll need it. Why would I ever need a key? I asked. You'll find out, he said. If you really want to find out what happened to your friend and figure out what the town is, you'll use the key to unlock the secrets of the town. Why should I trust you? I asked. I can't tell you that. You'll have to learn to trust me in time. He handed me the key. It was heavier than I expected it to be. I looked at it for a long moment before putting it into my pocket. What do you plan on doing with me? I asked. You're a very valuable asset to us. We want you to become the newest watcher of Yellowstone. I stared at him for a second, remembering what I had read in Thomas's journal. What is a watcher exactly? Well, it's a title given to humans who have been chosen by Ark to help protect the world from the supernatural, he said. Well, doesn't Ark already have watchers? I asked. Yes, they have many watchers, but none of them have ever entered one of the towns without changing, like you. 
You're the first human to enter one of the towns and return without becoming a monster, he answered. I sat there and thought about it. So if I agree to become a watcher, what are the risks for me? I asked. Well, there are no guarantees. The risk of your life, your sanity, and possibly losing your humanity are all very high. And what happens if I decline? I asked. We will kill you. He answered. I laughed. Why do you think I'll accept? I asked. And he smiled. Because you want to save your best friend Thomas and you want more answers. Are you saying that you can give me those answers? I asked. Not yet. But once you become a watcher, I'll be able to teach you everything you need to know. Well, how long until I can become a watcher? I asked. And he smiled. You've been a watcher ever since you read that journal. I stared at him for a minute before shaking my head. You can't be serious, I exclaimed. Completely serious. I sighed. Alright, so what exactly do you expect me to do? I don't know any more about the towns than you do. I know that much. So why did you ask me here then? Well, to offer you a job. A job? Yeah, a job as a watcher. I want you to become one of us. Well, what kind of job exactly? I asked. In order to become an official watcher, you must become a member of ARC, he answered. What does that entail? I asked. You will have to sign an agreement stating that you will work for us. You will also be required to undergo training and take a test to prove yourself, he explained. Well, and what do I get in return for signing this agreement? I asked. A bigger paycheck than you've ever seen, he answered. Seriously? Yeah, the pay's pretty good, he said. But the real benefit is the knowledge that you're helping to keep the world safe from monsters, demons, and other threats to humanity. Not everyone gets that chance. That sounds good to me, I said. Well, good, he said. Congratulations. He unlocked the door with the key and we left the room together. On the way out, a man dressed in a park ranger uniform approached me. This will be your new partner, Dr. Oxblood said. Welcome to Ark, he said. Do you mind if I ask your name? I asked. My name is John, he answered, and I shook his hand. Well, nice to meet you, John. Likewise. All right, well, I guess this is goodbye for now, Oxblood. I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon, I said. You better hope you do, he joked. After leaving the building, John and I got in his car and drove off. So where are we going? I asked. Well, back to your cabin, he answered. We arrived at my cabin and the sun was setting and the sky was getting dark. We got out of the car and headed towards the cabin. Once inside, I sat on the couch and I looked at John. So what's going to happen now? I asked. Well, that depends entirely on you. What do you mean by that? I asked. John took out a bottle of whiskey and poured himself a drink. I watched as he drank most of it before answering. I intend to train you to become a watcher, but until then, you'll be living with me, he said. Living with you? I asked. For the next couple of months, I'll help you get used to being a watcher so that when it comes time to choose your own partner you'll be able to keep them safe. You'll also start to learn things about Ark that even some of our agents don't know. 
or what kind of things. I can't really explain it to you. It will only make sense once you're fully trained. I nodded. Fine. Drink up, he said. We need to get you settled in. I laughed and poured myself some whiskey. John says that training begins in an hour. I'm going to take a nap before he trains me. I was awoken from my nap by the sound of shattering glass and John yelling for me to get my butt downstairs. I ran down and into the kitchen. What was that? It wasn't John who answered my question. Hello, Samuel. It seems I've gotten the upper hand this time, Irene said, holding John by the shoulders. She looked much younger than when I last saw her, and she was wearing a black dress, white gloves, and her hair was done up. She was beautiful and terrifying at the same time. What did you do to Thomas? I asked. Oh, Thomas was a fool, Samuel. He chose to stay behind to protect you. He made his choice and my town changed him, she said. I would have killed you both if you hadn't escaped. But now you're mine again and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. What are you talking about? What do you mean you're a town? I asked. Irene smirked, her eyes sparkling with hatred. My town is a demon. The town is a creature created by the demon king, Azazel. He built our town to serve as his prison. He puts all the monsters in it so they could one day be released upon your world. I was speechless. My mind was reeling from the news. Well, who are you? I finally managed to say. I'm the gatekeeper of the demon kingdom. I'm here to destroy the world and end life as we know it, she said. Let me go, John shouted. She slammed him against the wall and held him there with ease. You're not going anywhere until I decide otherwise, she said, smiling. Release him, I yelled. She looked at me and laughed. You don't seem to understand, Samuel. I control this place. Nobody is going to help you. She let go of John and walked towards me. You don't scare me, and I know you can't hurt me, she said. And that's when I remembered the silver key that Dr. Oxblood had given me. Where did you get that? She snarled. Wouldn't you like to know? I quipped back at her. I suddenly felt something strange. It was like my body was being pulled away from my soul. I struggled to hold on to it. What are you doing? She screeched. I tried to resist, but it was too late. My soul was gone. Give me the key. Irene screamed, running towards me. Suddenly, I was back in my body again. I was kneeling on the floor in front of Irene, holding onto my head with one hand and clutching my chest with the other. I could see everything in slow motion. I watched as Irene charged towards me, her face twisted with rage. I stood up and grabbed her by the neck, squeezing tightly. Let go of me, she screeched. I squeezed harder. I felt her throat bulge and blood began to leak out of her mouth. I threw her through the window that she had broken in through. I watched as she got up and glared at me before turning around and heading back towards a hungry horse. I turned around, looking over to John who was standing in the doorway, a deep gash running down the left side of his face. He smiled at me. You might not need as much training as I thought you would, he said. That was pretty impressive. I felt a surge of pride. I'll be right back, I said. 
Be careful, Samuel, he said. Don't go get yourself killed. I smiled. I wouldn't dream of it. I followed Irene back to her house in Hungry Horace. I was hoping to kill her, but right as I was about to enter through a window in the basement, I heard her say, Are you idiots ready yet? We just need five more humans and I'll be powerful enough to open another gate. I want to open the next one in Canada. I backed away, looking in through a window on the bottom floor, and I saw about 20 townspeople gathered inside. That's when I turned and ran. I ran as fast as I could, dialing John's number as I crossed Hungry Horse's border back into Yellowstone. John answered his phone almost immediately. Where are you? He asked. I ignored his question and asked one of my own instead. Are there any people camping in Yellowstone tonight? I asked. I'm not sure why. Irene only needs to take five more people before she can create another town and she's got a group together to go out and find some, I said. He swore under his breath. How big is the group? About 20. Alright, listen, I have a plan. We need to stop her before she can take more people. Are there any people camping close to Hungry Horace? I questioned him. Yeah, there's a bunch camping around Old Faithful, he said. How far away are we from them? I asked. Well, I don't know exactly. It's hard to tell how far away anything is in Montana at night, but they should be within half an hour or less, he answered. Alright, listen, I have a plan. Can you get to the campground before midnight? Yeah, I can be there in 30 minutes, he answered. Good. Get your gear together and meet me at Glacier. Don't forget to bring your guns, I ordered. Roger that, I'll see you there, he said. I hung up the phone and stared at it for several seconds before dialing Oxblood's number. Ah, Samuel. I cut him off. No time. I need you to send a team out to the campground at Glacier. I told him. Alright, I'll have a team heading out there as soon as possible. He answered. I hung up the phone as I began to run faster than any human has ever run before. I thought about Irene and how close she was to opening another gate. I was filled with rage and knowing that I might die trying to stop her, but I couldn't think about that right now. I needed to focus on what I was doing. If Irene opened up another gate, who knows what will happen. The moon was slowly rising into the sky, casting long shadows across the ground. The air was cold and the temperature was dropping as I ran. I could hear the sounds of the wolves chasing their prey somewhere nearby. As I ran towards the campground near Glacier, I could smell smoke emanating from the campground. I shivered at the familiar scent and I continued to run. As I got closer to Glacier, I noticed the campground was packed full of tents and RVs. I started hearing gunshots and screams. I looked around frantically for ARC operatives, but it didn't appear that they were here yet. There was a large burning fire in the middle of the campground. It looked like somebody had set it. I kept running, weaving between the tents until I found a tent that was completely shredded on one side and engulfed in flames. There was a body inside and it was completely mangled. I could barely make out any details of the person's face. There was no way to tell much of anything from what was left of it. But whoever this person was, they definitely weren't a friend of Irene's. I looked around the campground again and saw nothing but chaos. 
People were screaming, crying, and running away from Irene's monsters as John fought them off. Suddenly, I heard the sound of a helicopter. I looked up at the night sky and saw an arc helicopter swooping in. It hovered over the middle of the campground, their lights shining brightly. Ark, come on, hurry, I yelled. I was still a few hundred feet away from the fight when I saw one of those things jump onto the roof of an RV and launch itself at the helicopter. It smashed through the window and tore the pilot out of her seat. I watched helplessly as the helicopter careened out of control, crashing into the last section of the campground that wasn't blocked by Irene's people. The helicopter exploded, sending debris everywhere and causing panic amongst the remaining campers. I took off running, making my way towards the center of the campground where John and his men were fighting the creatures. He kept them at bay, but they were slowly overwhelming him. That's when Irene grabbed him by the throat and lifted him off the ground, her face inches from his, her long red nails glistening in the moonlight. What do you think you're doing? She growled. John struggled to speak. Why are you doing this? What do you want? He wheezed. She leaned in closer and brought her lips to John's ear. What do I want? She whispered and then pushed him back, sending him flying into the dirt. I want your world, she yelled. She pointed at John and the campers. And nothing you can do will stop me. She roared with laughter. She stepped forward and placed her foot on John's neck. Now you're going to watch as my people slaughter every single person that you were trying to protect. My vision went red and I let out the loudest, most visceral roar that I had ever heard. The fighting instantly stopped as everyone winced and covered their ears. Everyone but Irene that is. Irene had turned and snarled at me. Hey, I sneered at her. I stood in front of her, my hands balled into fists at my sides. I looked into Irene's eyes as she glared back at me with pure hatred in her own. Do you really think that you'll stand a chance against me? I'm the strongest being that you will ever have to face. You're nothing compared to what I can do. She yelled, her voice filled with venom. Watch me, I responded. I took several steps back and leaned forward letting the muscles of my legs tense up. My shoulders tightened and I could feel my back arch. I let out another primal roar as I prepared to pounce. Irene smirked, her eyes sparkling in the light of the burning fires. Go ahead, you'll never touch me, watcher, she taunted. You're far too. I didn't give her the time to finish. I sprang forward, slamming into Irene and knocking us both to the ground. I felt her claws rip through my jacket as we fell, but I didn't care. I wanted to tear her apart. We rolled over and over, punching and clawing at each other. I tried to use my enhanced strength to pin her down, but she was too quick and dexterous. I managed to hit her in the stomach, but she simply grabbed my arm and threw me across the campground. I slammed into the side of an RV, which sent it rolling. The impact knocked all the wind out of me and left me stunned for a moment. I lay there in pain, unable to move while Irene walked over to me. You should have stayed in your cabin, you pathetic little watcher, she screamed. I rolled onto my back and wiped the blood from my mouth as I watched her approach. 
I'm going to enjoy ripping you apart, she said. Not if I can help it, I growled. I rose to my knees and let out a defiant roar. I'm going to end you, Irene, I said. She laughed. Do you know how many watchers before you thought that same thing? She taunted. Well, maybe I'll be the first to actually do it, I said. It won't be the last. I've been killing watchers since before you were born. And I'll continue to kill them until my power is absolute, she said. Not today, I promised. I didn't have to wait very long to test my words. Irene charged at me, and with one fluid motion, I grabbed her by the neck and flung her to my right. She smashed into the picnic table. The force of the impact had knocked the entire thing over, spilling food and drinks everywhere. Irene let out a scream of anger and frustration as she scrambled to her feet. She picked up the picnic table and threw it at me. I used my enhanced strength to leap out of the way, but the table splintered and cracked against the side of an RV. I turned to see Irene charging at me once again. I sidestepped her attack and punched her in the stomach. She grunted and doubled over, falling to her knees. I kicked her in the face, sending her crashing backward. Irene got to her feet and charged at me once more, swinging the broken remains of the picnic table around like a weapon. I ducked under it and kicked her in the chest, slamming her back into a tree. She fell to the ground, gasping for breath. Irene struggled to get to her feet. You won't kill me. You'll never be able to kill me, she said. I could tell that she was really starting to doubt that. You're wrong, and we both know I can, I said. Irene finally was able to stand back up. She brought the broken remains of the picnic table around like a shield. Well, come on then, watcher. Let's finish this. I lunged forward, my hands outstretched. I slammed them into the wooden railing of the picnic table, shattering it and knocking Irene to the ground. I grabbed her by the throat and lifted her up off the ground. You will pay for everything you've done, every life you've took, I growled. You'll never kill us all, she spat in my face. More of you humans join us every day, she began laughing. I gripped her head and twisted hard. Her neck snapped like a twig, and the red light faded from her eyes. I turned to look at the chaos that was taking place in the campground behind me. I let out a primal, earth-shaking roar and I tore into the last of Irene's group. My rage was so powerful that the ground shook and trees toppled over. The sound of metal screaming in protest echoed throughout the night as I fought. It was beautiful. I lost track of time as I killed each and every one of them, leaving no survivors. They had made their choice and now they would suffer the consequences. The carnage was horrible, and I hadn't even reached Hungry Horse yet. I tore the last of the group apart as I reached the town and as I did, the sun finally started to rise, and the residents of Irene's town were already up and about. They were in for a surprise. I started at the diner, tearing the door off the hinges and slaughtering every last resident inside. I stormed through town, destroying anything that got in my way, and I moved quickly and efficiently tearing through a row of houses, smashing through walls and breaking furniture. The citizens were panicked. They were running everywhere trying to escape. 
only to find themselves trapped in the middle of my rampage. I heard the screams and cries of terror as I destroyed the town, and soon it was done. I had slaughtered everyone who had lived there, and I was left standing in the center of a pile of dead residents. It was over. Irene had failed. The people of her town were gone. I grinned and called Dr. Axblood. He would definitely enjoy hearing about this. Good job, Samuel. I heard it was quite the show. I wish I had been there to witness it, Oxblood said. It was incredible. I don't think that I'll ever forget it, I replied. Excellent work. Your work here is done. Go home and take some time to rest and recover. There will be more blood to spill soon enough. These towns aren't the only weird things about national parks, Oxblood said. Understood. I'll contact you when I need you again, Oxblood had added. I hung up the phone and I closed my eyes. What was next? I couldn't wait to find out. But for now, it was good to know that Yellowstone was in safe hands. I work for the government rehabilitating ancient gods. Written by Christian Wallace. He told me I couldn't pronounce his name, so I called him Bob. You have to make fun where you find it in a job like this, and seeing the label Bob slowly applied to the two-story crate that contained this eldritch god was actually kind of funny. Whether Bob likes it or not, that's his title from onwards. As long as he's here, tagged in our system, he'll only ever be known as Bob. The hissing emergence, the writhing insect mind, the burning hunger beneath the dark. All of these are now just aliases appended to his file. Mold handles for something that once dwelt in a pocket dimension, 6,000 feet beneath the soil of a weathered plateau in western China. Now Bob is just one entry in a long list of things that have been categorized, organized, and itemized. He claimed he was one of the elder gods who descended onto Earth and helped craft the litany of life that burst out of the Cambrian, and that he was once worshipped by a subrace of humans, possibly the Denisovans. But I don't worship anything, let alone Bob. I got enough of him to finish the entire interview, but like all of them, he kept demanding worship and sacrifice. I think that'll give him a week alone, then have the guys roll his crate out into the open play area, where he can see the other primordial ancient gods at play. I know that he senses them, the others. Most of them will probably leave him alone, provided he doesn't try to bully them at first. But we've got a few with real attitudes and they like nothing more than picking on the new guy. I could sense the anxiety in him as he stood in his cage. Pulsing rhythms of flesh rolling in non-Euclidean planes that made my eyes water and my visual cortex throb. I could tell he was uncomfortable. He knew there were bigger fish in the pond and that he was in for a rough ride once he meets them. The thing to remember with these guys is that... If they were in hiding, they probably weren't that big a deal to begin with. It took a small army in three years to excavate Bob, 
and I think that says everything you need to know about him. Agatha. I like Agatha. She's old, she's wise, she's funny. To think that we found her trapped in a cavern beneath Paris. She had been stuck there for over a hundred million years. No stimulation, no entertainment, nothing. One of the other ancient gods just put her there and she couldn't get out, no matter how hard she tried. Until we found her. The first sign of Agatha that came across my desk was a report of unusual drilling by a company hired to maintain Paris' sewage system. They inevitably encountered the catacombs as you do, and through some complicated mess up, they punched a hole into an undiscovered series of subterranean chambers. These weren't man-made and they had nothing to do with the catacombs. Vast open spaces filled with growing lichen and bone-colored stalactites that were three stories tall. A Vernia netherworld hidden beneath one of the world's most populated cities. They're still mapping it out, I believe, but that falls under another department. How it was missed, I'm not sure. Maybe others did discover it, but took one look at the aching darkness and they turned around. That would be the sensible thing to do for sure. Why those construction workers went rooting around down there, I'll never know. But it was about as bad as a decision as anybody could make. I went in with a team three days after they had disappeared. Two guards and one assistant who wouldn't shut up. More than once, the guard on my left flashed me a knowing look. A kind of Jim Halbert, oh boy here we go look. As the assistant voiced another naive inquiry. I rolled my eyes and let the guard and I share the moment. Two experienced agents who found the newbie a little irritating. Those kind of routine social movements, basic human interactions, they're not my cup of tea. But I've learned it's not a bad thing to practice being normal some of the time. Still, the assistant yammered on blissfully unaware just how much he was annoying everyone. I could have told him to stop, but I'm not an idiot. It's like that joke about the two hikers who see a bear, and one of them kneels down and starts to do his laces, so his friend turns and says, What are you doing? You'll never outrun a bear. Then the guy replies, I don't have to, I just have to outrun you. So yeah, I let the assistant chat loudly on as we trekked deeper into the caverns, our path lit by the eerie glow of a fluorescent lichen. What do you think we'll find down here? He asked. Like if we do find an old one, like what type? Eh, probably a news. I replied as I palmed the inscriptions on the wall. The torso-sized symbols had been burnt into the stone, with what looked like acid. Like the last one you brought in. The assistant chirped. What was it called? The crawling shadow that dwells beneath our fears. I snorted. It's Alfie from now on, I said before holding up a finger to stop any further questions. I spotted a single point of light up ahead, flickering in and out of life but so clearly visible in the chthonic darkness. When we reached it, we found that it was a single head torch, modern design with its batteries close to dying. Found our missing workers. One of the guards grumbled as he nudged it with his foot. Without speaking, the two men armed their weapons. One slid into point and the other towards the rear. 
In my direction, we carried but picked up the pace to something less leisurely. I read the entry interview for, um, Alfie. The assistant nervously muttered. It said that it was the progenitor of all cephalopods. Is that true? It makes sense, they're so alien. I rolled my eyes. If I had a penny for every one of these things that claimed to have invented octopuses, I'd be a rich man. But it just makes sense. Their anatomy, especially their distributed central nervous system, it's completely diff. Something lunged out of the darkness to our left. A hairless man clad in torn and dirty overalls. He growled like an animal as he tackled the assistant to the ground and buried his face into the young man's chest. This peculiar method of attack had piqued my curiosity, and I watched with a detached interest as two men writhed on the ground while my assistant squealed and cried in agony. The fight, if it was a fight, was going poorly for him. He kept trying to lever his bloody fingers beneath the man's face, struggling to pull the feature of his head away from his chest. Eventually, his screams became uncomfortable and I nodded to the oldest guard who shot the attacker effortlessly. Two hits to the torso, one to the side of the head. The exit wounds weren't typical. They were bloodless punctures, like finger holes in plastic wrap. The attacker still keeled over but his head remained stuck to the young man's chest, almost like it had been glued there. The assistant kept on screaming, a real ear-splitting shriek as he gestured futilely at his chest. Get it off. Get it off, it burns. I walked over and tried to roll the attacker off, but something had bonded at the two men's skin. Another tug and nothing. Confused and admittedly intrigued, I planted a foot on the assistant's shoulder and pulled with everything that I had. Without having to be told, the two guards came over and they helped. We knew that we were close when the assistant's squealing hysterics pitched to a crescendo, and he passed out for a few fleeting seconds before coming to in total shock. He lay there whimpering as we had finished the job, finally tearing the two men apart with a noise like a boob being pulled out of deep mud. Finally apart, I saw that the attacker's face wasn't a face at all. It was a fingerprint. The ridges dotted with little pea-sized orifices, oozing a clear fluid that smoked and sizzled in the open air. The assistant still lay where we had left him, whimpering as he gingerly probed his ruined chest with quaking hands. The skin was dissolving before our very eyes, and even his sternum began to wilt and sag like wet cardboard. You could see his heartbeat like something out of a cartoon. Oh, no, 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 he muttered as he gazed at his own crumbling flesh. I nodded at the guard and he shot him. I take it this is one of the workers, the guard asked as he had nudged the attacker. His light caught an ID badge that answered his own question, so I merely shrugged and gestured for us to carry on. Half a mile later, we found Agatha playing with the rest of the workers. All of them looked like our attacker with rubbery, hairless heads, resembling giant thumbs without nails. They crawled on hands and knees, using their boneless skulls to pin scuttling albino rats to the floor, where they digested them alive. The rest of the time, they lay propped against Agatha's quivering ectoplasm, 
stroking the ridges of their own faces and emitting a muffled whine. Agatha and I spoke for a good while down there. It really didn't take much to get her to agree to a relocation to our facility. One of her bindings held her in place were easily undone, and unlike Bob, there was no need for a crate. She was cooperative. We let her keep the workers that she had gotten her feelers on, and with good behavior, she later got her own studio. The other oozes think she's a teacher's pet and moan endlessly about her special treatment. They don't see what I see. I think it's because her creations don't factor into some ridiculous plan of world domination or the consumption of all life, or some other self-aggrandizing stuff like that. She's an artist. Those construction workers, she didn't reshape their bodies because she wanted worshippers. It was she had just never seen a fingerprint before, and the intricate pattern had struck her as beautiful. Everything she did afterwards was simply an exploration of aesthetic and function. I mean, those men are still alive. Vestigial mouths opening and closing behind a thick layer of leathery skin, their eyes withered and useless, forced to rely on their touch and sound to track their prey. Many of them have given up scrawling desperate messages for us to reverse what Agatha did to them. As the years have gone on and they've accepted their fate, gleefully gobbling up whatever medical waste we throw on their cages. A few have even given into the new and peculiar reproductive cycle that Agatha had dreamed up for them. Imagine that. A whole new self-sustaining species, made for no reason other than whimsy. That's what I mean when I say Agatha is an artist. I've talked a lot about the Uses. They're a good set of ancient gods to start with, but if I'm honest, they're a little overhyped. Outside of Agatha, none of them really interest me. They're just single-celled organisms with projections into fifth, sixth and seventh dimensions that allow them to host biochemical reactions, otherwise impossible in real space. One of them, I'm pretty sure, is a skin cell, shed by some passing cosmic monstrosity that visited our solar system a few billion years ago. Agatha confirmed the general direction of this theory, but it's a struggle to get any real details on what that thing might have been. Still, we have other eldritch abominations and ancient gods. Lots. Take Keith, for example. He's a strange one. It wasn't even that long ago that my newish assistant was asking about him. She had glimpsed his face, walking past his door and, understandably, was confused by the sight of an Asian male aged 30, wearing a checkered shirt, slim-fitting jeans, and a polite smile. But why is his containment cell so much stronger than the others? She asked after I explained that she had just met a god named Keith. A fur Faraday cage built into the walls, I said, and about a hundred other technologies. He couldn't physically break out, of course. But it's important he doesn't feed on the workers here, and that takes a little extra pizzazz. He's polite enough. A strange fellow, though. For one thing, I didn't name him. He picked Keith himself. Most people assume that was me, but nope. He picked it. Feed. She repeated with a frown. What does he feed on? Generally, I find that the problem with assistance is that you can't train them, or rather, there isn't any point. Even the most highly trained expert 
will only last less than five years under my supervision. So I end up going with people who have only a passing knowledge of the ancient gods, which is fine, of course. I'm not going to penalize anyone for ignorance. But the questions, good God, the questions. So I told her to let Keith out and to see for herself. After that, I loaded her up with the relevant equipment and told her to shadow him for three weeks and to not call me for a second before the allotted time was over. She rang three weeks later and much to my own amusement, I realized that I had forgotten about her. I had even hired a new assistant. To think that I had spent days avoiding accounts because they insisted that our budgets were out of line. We had a good laugh about that. Anyway, I found her sat on some country road, sobbing her eyes out. Keith was beside her wearing a priest's outfit. His face was Caucasian, but it was slowly sliding back into his original appearance with each passing second. Keith's default face is a loose average of all humans currently alive. He sat there drumming a little rhythm on his knees while my assistant rocked back and forth hyperventilating. How was it? I asked as I knelt down in front of her. I don't... I don't... Have you figured it out yet? I asked. I don't... Oh, for goodness sake. I groaned and then gestured for my newest assistant to take notes. Have Psycheville take a look at her and if need be, arrange for euthanasia. Grab her stuff though, we're still going to have to clean this up. The equipment that she has will let us track the guy. Oh, oh, alright, he stammered. But we have the god contained, don't we? He pointed at Keith who was starting to dance a little jig to his knee drum song. Eh, Keith isn't the problem, I said. It's whoever he's been impersonating. A priest, I assume, from the outfit. Keith heard his name and gave me a wave and a nod. Keith likes identity, I said while returning the wave. He consumes a person's unique character from the collective consciousness of our species. He takes over their lives, while they're basically erased from existence. The result is that the victim can't be recognized anymore, and neither can the consequences of their actions. If you talk to someone, they can't hear it. If you take the food out of their hand, they'll think that they ate it. If you steal their car, they'll think that they never owned one. They can't even get sick because bacteria and viruses won't recognize their existence. The average person goes into a deep state of despair upon realizing this. Oh, my new assistant nodded. For about a week and then they start to think about the moral implications of their actions. I added, and that's when stuff gets nightmarishly dark. It's the kind of stuff that warrants an A4 page of trigger warnings. I walked over to my weeping ex-assistant and nudged her with my foot. You aren't able to tell us where he went, are you? I mean, you're here. You must have been observing the guy pretty close. I don't, I don't, I don't. Keith, what about you? Hi. I laughed. It was always worth a try, but Keith was about as sapient as a coffee table. Gods aren't always smart. What about you? I asked my new assistant. You didn't happen to bring a map of the area. Actually, I did, sir, he chirped. There's a restaurant a few miles down the road. I shrugged while looking at the map that he held open. I doubt that's it. Too many roads. Three quarters of all of Keith's victims die by car within the first week. 
This guy's gone 21 days, so he must have figured the basics out. Uh, there's a farm a little nearer, he replied. I shook my head. No, that doesn't sound right. If he wanted to bugger his sheep, he could have just visited a petting zoo. We are in the middle of nowhere. There must be something in this area that would draw him here. Probably somewhere he visited regularly as a part of his day-to-day -day life as a priest. Oh, well, it seems that if you're willing to cross a few open fields, there's a care home for the elderly some miles east. I let out a sign that came from deep within my bones. That's the one, I said. Uh, come on, let's go. Eighteen hours later and I was back in my office and Keith was locked up again. Unfortunately, I lost the new new assistant to clearing out the care home, so that was two assistants lost from just one bad decision. The poor guy couldn't hack what he saw in that place. But what can I say? Why do people do such messed up fruity and stuff the second they realize they won't be held accountable? I don't know. But it doesn't speak volumes to our species character. Like I said though, Keith is a great ancient god. A real compelling character. Best guess to his origin is that he's the equivalent to those camera drones. That they dress up as hippos and other dangerous animals to get footage for a documentary. He's pretty decent at impersonating a human, but five minutes of real conversation makes it apparent that he's dumber than a bag of rocks. Does that mean some great entity is piloting him from another dimension? Maybe. It's only a theory. Whatever he is, he's polite and I appreciate that he's an eldritch god. We have other kinds of ancient gods and eldritch abominations. The machine ones are fun. Most of them are just massive piles of rusted cogs that vomit oil and blood, or are led into some ancient in-between dimension, where everything looks like a crappy hotel. But some of them are actually really quite fascinating. A few are even legitimately dangerous. Our organic computer unsettles even me. It's wily, a genuinely fascinating piece of equipment that some German cobbler in 13th century Berlin made using the nervous system of his wife, three children, and four very unlucky victims. What on earth compelled him to do this we'll never know, but he hanged himself the day it was finished and I can't blame him. It's a bloody ugly thing to look at, a quivering mixture of putrefied jelly and cartilage that whispers all sorts of filth from mummified orifices. That, uh, well, let's just say they make for a crappy conversation. It's bloody awful to see those puckered holes trying to spit out lurid truths that drive men mad. It's like listening to Almer Fudd recite the Necronomicon. And to top it all off, the thing only speaks German. So, of course, I had to hire someone with German language skills who also had a doctorate in computer science, another doctorate in historical languages and I hoped was a strong constitution. Initially, he wasn't very keen on doing the job, but I locked him in there for a few minutes, and after that, he was very interested. We already had a rough idea that the computer somehow deduced and formulated secret knowledge, usually catered to appeal to the nearest individual. The CIA worked with us for a while trying to use it to get state secrets, but they deemed it ethically problematic and not worth the human suffering. Either way, this thing presumably spoke to the young upstart and convinced him that it was worth his time with promises of getting to see God's face or some rubbish like that. Once he agreed, I set him up to try and get the computer to cooperate with our rehab program. 
It must have been able to do something useful. I thought, but maybe you could crunch numbers for the stock market or test experimental medication. I just figured that it would all work out once the guy got to grips with the computer's inner workings. Unfortunately, I really do wish that I had seen this coming. We accidentally let him install an Ethernet port into the machine. It had been asking for years, you see, but no one was ever stupid enough to agree to it. And of course, all material requisitions have to first go by me, even if it's just for an extension cord. But there are so many of these requests, and I don't have the time or the temperament to review them all in detail. So somewhere along the line, this guy got enough resources to give the dang thing internet access. I didn't notice at first, I mean nobody did. I am juggling literally hundreds of these things on any given day, and I can't even keep track of every little side project. I assumed the computer scientist was doing his job, or he had gotten careless and was now living a new life as an organic CD-ROM drive. Instead, he had given the monstrous little MacBook a hardwired connection to the World Wide Web, and it immediately got up to all sorts of mischief. Even now, we don't really know everything that it did. We're 99% certain that it made copies of itself, and we're still hunting those down. And some researchers connected it to a very troubling cryptocurrency scheme. But it was the hospital that sticks with me. A little girl in New Delhi was getting fitted for a cochlear implant when this thing snuck a neurolinguistic virus into the machine's firmware. If you're not familiar, those implants basically make a, for a direct connection between a hearing aid and the human brain. They're miraculous devices, really. A bit of surgery and boom, a person can hear. Of course, having your head cracked open requires lots of bed rest afterwards. Three weeks, I believe. All contact was lost with the hospital after the fourth day. We only mobilized once I finally realized what the thing was trying to do. The connection is definitely severed. I remembered asking the words as we pushed through the glass doors into the hospital's lobby. The entrance was open for barely a few seconds, but I could feel the entire battalion of armed soldiers behind us tense nervously as we stepped through. Only once the door was shut and locked down did I get the feeling that they had relaxed. But that left my team and I on the other side, and even though New Delhi was scorching at that time of the year, it was cold enough to see our breath. I guess the sudden change in temperature must have taken the others by surprise, because I had to repeat my earlier question. We definitely got that computer off the internet right. I asked in one particularly nervous hazmat suit, fumbled for their tablet and nodded. The surgical team finished removing the port 16 hours ago, they said, and all other tests have shown that there were no redundancies or backups. Now they're asking what they should do with the computer scientist. What does that mean? Well, he's still alive, he's, um, they're saying that he's in pain. They think they can remove him from the machine, but they're not sure that he'll survive. It's, uh, it's apparently integrated itself with most of his nervous system. He was in there for six full weeks. I shone my light across the lobby and saw overturned chairs lit only by the flashing amber lights that declared the hospital was in a state of emergency. Otherwise, the hospital was trapped in an oppressive darkness that seemed ready to swallow us all. Despite my experience, my breath caught in my throat. I could feel it. 
the ambient pain and misery. Something awful had been let loose and not only were we stuck in that building with it, but we had no choice but to head right towards something that gave even me nightmares. Leave Emma, I said. It'll be a good reminder to the next guy that I hire. When you negotiate with these things, you don't give them what they want without checking why they want it. I could hear the tension in my voice, my fear escaping whether I wanted it to or not. The nervous figure nodded and tapped a few keys. I couldn't see their face, but I guessed that they weren't happy to realize their boss was prone to doling out literal lifetimes of unspeakable agony. At least the guards were a bit more focused. Eight of them armed to the teeth and all fairly experienced. They were painting the walls with their flashlights and slowly mapping the different ways in and out of the lobby. They had their own frequency so I wouldn't be overwhelmed with every bit of chatter, but I could tell from the subtle bobbing of their heads that a lot was going back and forth. What's the plan, guys? I asked, not wanting to linger in that graveyard atmosphere for one second longer. We have heat signatures in pediatrics. Survivors? My assistant asked. I doubt it. I said to my assistant before gesturing to the guards and telling them to pick a door. One of the men turned his weapon and its light towards the most obvious exit, and we began our journey into one of the worst places that I've ever been. I've seen a lot of awful stuff, but it was the quiet that bothered me the most about that place. Most sites that I visit are a violent eruption of body horror and contagious nightmares, communicable cancer that lumps people together like pieces of raw bread dough, contagious ideas that cause needles to spontaneously erupt out of your flesh, a hole in the ground that has no bottom but demands the most peculiar sacrifices. I took those sorts of things in my stride, but those silent halls terrified me. Maybe it was because I had an inclination as to what the computer's goals were. We passed room after room devoid of any living soul, and over time it became clear that there had been something of an exodus. Gurneys with bloodstains and bedpans knocked over, their contents half frozen to the floor. IV bags left dripping where the needle had been torn out and left dangling. Blood-streaked walls and beds with outlines of sweaty, unwell people who were nowhere to be found. At one point, we found what I think was an open-heart surgery patient who had heeded the same terrible call as everyone else, including his surgeons who did not bother to close him up. He must have awoken hours after everyone else late to the party, but that didn't deter him. He rolled off the bed and crawled desperately. He didn't even remove the metal bar holding his ribcage open. He got a few meters before dying. When I flipped him over with my foot, I saw ribs splayed open like an ivory Venus flytrap, his organs covered in a thin veneer of frost. Dead as a doornail, his lips blue and his eyes cloudy from ice, and yet somehow he looked happy to be lying there in his own offal. I grimaced at the sight and tried to put it out of my mind but the glee in his eyes still haunts me. How far are we from pediatrics? I asked the guard. It's one floor up, a guard replied. Are we still getting a heat signature? He nodded. The stairwell was full of random bits and pieces. Pencils, phones, shoes, watches. All manner of little things that people left behind as they rushed the door in a terrible crowd. 
I saw a few teeth, a few spatters of blood. It all led to that one place. Inside the corridor was a mess, just like the stairwell. Nearly a thousand people had converged on one doorway at the end. Along the way, paintings had been torn off the walls. Doors were put through so much strain that they buckled and broke. There were even bloodied handprints on the ceilings from where the crowd, hitting a bottleneck, had surged upwards as well as sideways into walls and through locked doors. They had flowed through the hospital like a flood. What could make people do this? My assistant asked as we started to spot the first few people whose bodies had fallen and been unable to get back up. Crushed beneath the feet of the crowd, their corpses made for an ugly sight. Mostly, they looked like they had been elderly. At least if these silver hair matted into it was anything to go by. But a few of them were too small to be anything other than children. That computer has spent the last few hundred years trying to speak to God, I said. It's been screaming his name on and off for the last few decades. Sometimes it'll cook up little side projects for fun. But mostly it all comes back to that singular goal. I turned to the armed men behind me. Tell the team outside to prep our facilities and teams for the Abraham procedure. There was a bustle of activity as each one reached to radios and tablets and began sending messages. Once it had faded and silence returned, I gestured for us all to carry on. I wouldn't bother. I said when I saw my assistant trying to take steps between the increasingly frequent bodies. It's only going to get worse. And it did. Until the last, there was no floor to see. There was only a carpet of discolored gowns and broken humans. All of them victims of some unseen compulsion, drawing them towards those doors. Two of them, each with a window painted black with blood and flesh. And just beyond lay our heat signature. Oh, it actually did it, didn't it? I muttered to myself as I suppressed a shiver. Pardon? My assistant asked. Come on, I said, trying my best to seem chirpy. Let's go speak to one of God's representatives. Inside was a little girl who paced like a tiger in a zoo. She didn't smile when she saw us, but she did stop and stare at us with eyes that could appear steel. Oh boy, I muttered, secretly glad that no one could see the sweat pouring down my face. A survivor? My assistant asked and I wondered if he paid any attention to his surroundings. Much like outside this room had been coated with what seemed like half a foot of blood, meat, and muscle. But unlike outside, this flesh was still twitching. Uh, nope, I said as I put a hand across his chest to stop him from rushing towards her. It isn't like me to intervene on behalf of somebody else's stupidity. But then again, I don't like losing leverage either. It's the girl, he said. The one with the implant that you identify. Nope, I repeated. He looked closer. Perhaps coming to appreciate the absolute monstrous expression of hatred painted on her face. That girl would have been the first to go, I said. Her head was used to emit sounds that only they can hear. I gestured to the girl-shaped illusion that had now resumed its pacing. A summoning for an angel. Something anyone with half a brain cell would never do. And unfortunately, this summoning worked. And when the angel arrived and realized that it had been caught in a trap, it would have smashed whatever was making that noise into pieces. 
and then it would have summoned every living human that it could to try and find whoever had set the bait. And for every person that couldn't help it, they would have gotten angrier and angrier and angrier. Until, my assistant asked, until some arrived to inspect the trap. We could, we could just let it go, he replied. And the girl stopped pacing once more and looked at us. It would kill us if we were lucky, I said. I thought angels were good. These things are puppeteers, I said. They can play our nervous system like a fiddle and make us see or feel anything they want us to. They can take us apart and put us back together in any arrangement that they feel like. Because whatever put us on this earth left them behind so they could impregnate unwitting teenagers, split the Red Sea, and conjure whatever other miracles were needed. They were meant to be our caretakers like we were meant to be the caretakers of Earth. That sounds like good guys. Think about how we've treated planet Earth, I snapped. Think about how we treat the birds and the animals. Think about industrial farming. Think about how we treat dogs. Castration, sterilization. We breed them into disability. Force them into incest. Clip their ears and break their tails. Euthanize them when it's convenient. Breed them when it isn't. And they, pointed to the girl, like us, a heck of a lot less than we like dogs. Let me go. I knew we had been compromised the second we saw the girl as a girl the nutty scuttling a racked in monstrosity larger than most cars. But I still jumped at the sound of that thing's voice. It meant that it had a direct wiretap into our minds. Angels don't do wireless, everything is physical. Somewhere in that room were organic filaments thinner than hair but tougher than steel and they had already breached our suits, and they were communicating directly with our brainstems. Uh, no, I replied. Letting you out means that my final moments will be painful. But you're weak, that much is clear, and we've been pumping all sorts of nasty stuff into this place for two days straight, and I'm pretty sure that's why I'm not trapped in a literal nightmare of eternal suffering and degradation. Let me go. And we're open to negotiation, I said with a cheerful tone stolen from the barista that I visited every morning. For a second, the illusion flickered in and out. The girl disappeared and we all glimpsed a bramble-like knot of chitinous legs that concealed some unseen central mass. Only each limb was as thick as my thigh and covered in undulating hairs and glistening black eyes. I felt an overwhelming desire to kneel. We will let you go, I said, if you allow us to go unharmed. We can shut the trap down. We have its creator and it has shown us how. But we won't do that if it just means you're going to kill us. The barrage of images it put into my mind is a response to this. Let's just say that it made Key's last victim look like a boy scout. Most of eldritch abominations don't have feelings the way that we understand them, but angels do. They were deliberately sculpted to understand us and our world so they can better manipulate it from behind the scenes. They're not alien, they're worse. They are jealous and despiteful, incapable of putting these emotions to work on an unprecedented scale. This is the kind of hatred that prompts invisible genocides over some misplaced tea. Whole ethnic groups have been permanently scrubbed from our history because of these things. I'm talking violet eyes and naturally blue hair. Gone. All gone. We don't even remember them. 
If it wasn't for Agatha, neither would I. We could kill you, I said. You're not immortal, you're just a thing like us. Biological matter that can come undone just as easily. Not quite as easily. Your official designation by the others. You know the others, I replied. The blobs and the goat-footed breeders who go scuttling in dark places. The dwellers in the deep. The primordial oozes who were here long before you. They call you Exodida after Tex. That's how they see you. You're a parasite like the kind of farmer has to protect his sheep from. That makes you livestock. Still, we are at an impasse, I said. You're dying. Even as I spoke, I could feel the facade of my plan start to crumble. There was no easy way out of this situation, and I had entered it terrified as to how I was going to make it work. Angels are a sophisticated species, and they would be deeply unhappy to know that a bunch of primitives had gotten the better of one of their own. I had hoped to try out some kind of negotiating, but that would be like one of us negotiating with a stray dog that had bitten a child. No matter what happened, if this angel died, I could count on the others finding me. And that would be a best case scenario, living a day or even a week. Unfortunately, I didn't even get that far. Without even appearing to move, the angel unmade the guards. I've thought about this a lot, believe me, but there's no other way that I can describe it to you. They were pulled apart into their disparate tissues in the blink of an eye. A bloodless vivisection that struck the room like an explosion. Muscle, bone, eyes, teeth, skin, nerve endings. They were thrown against the walls and subsumed into the living carpet of flesh all around us. I had to suppress a whimper as I realized that it was still alive, possibly even aware. Beside me, my assistant fell to his knees and began to weep. But I knew that no amount of begging or praying would change the angel's intentions. We just had to hope that it would be relatively quick and that the consequences wouldn't be. Your mind tastes awful, it boomed. The words so loud I fell to my knees as my willpower had crumbled. Not like the others, how assuming. It has been so long since I bothered to keep a pet. It agreed to your terms? My boss has sat before like three judges at a tribunal. A man and two women with faces that looked like they had been carved out of granite. The boardroom was supposed to be a professional environment where meetings could be had with other relevant departments. But in truth, it just turned into the site of disciplinary meetings like this. Yeah, something like that, I replied. Why? One of them asked. Well, he was younger than we thought, just a few hundred years old. And thankfully for us, something of a history buff. That's why he heeded the signal from the hospital in the first place. Apparently the creator is something of a taboo topic in their culture. He was hoping to learn a little more about it all. He has been thrilled to enter our organization from within and peruse our archives. And none of his and none of the others have come looking for him, the man asked. No need. He's alive and well and enjoying himself. Business as usual. There was a knock on the door and I turned to see my assistant poking his head through. He waved and smiled and showed me the tray of coffee that he wanted to bring in. I smiled back and gave him a thumbs up. We were always led to believe that angels and other Abrahamic abominations were not on the cards for this organization. Will he have trouble working with the program? 
One of the bosses asked as the young man placed the tray down and began to distribute drinks. Well, unlike others, they're actually very well versed in human mannerisms and our society. Not much rehabilitation to do really. And of course, they can appear however they want, so long as they have a direct line of sight. I answered. A lot of the time they let our mind do the heavy work. We fill in the necessary blanks. If they appear as policemen, we'll see everything we need to in order to support that idea. A gun, badge, and so on. Ultimately, it's our own minds that make their disguises so convincing, without them even having to move. And what are you calling him? This angel. Muriel. My boss's eyes went wide as they processed the voice that had been inserted directly into their mind. One by one, they lowered their drinks and turned to face my assistant. Even I, who had spent days with the walking nightmare, could not suppress a shiver. Uh, sorry, he said before coughing to clear his throat. Force of habit, I like Uriel. He told me that I couldn't pronounce his name. I explained as my assistant stood behind me and placed a single hand on my shoulder. I tried to ignore the taste of copper in my mouth and the intense itch at the back of my neck. So I let him pick an appropriate and respectful alternative. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you might be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.